Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, October 5th, 2010. Yeah, there's just no way I'm going to get to everything I need to get to today. All right, these got to stay in. I don't want to cut any of this. Ah! Trying to make an executive decision. Apparently I'm not a good executive. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said. And unfortunately, uh, many of those crazy things being said are by people who are considered to be model uh, Christian leaders. And um, since I don't have a problem taking modern Christian leaders to task and saying, wait a second, that's not what God's Word says, I generally find myself from time to time embroiled in controversy. And uh, it's not that I'm seeking it, it's just that uh, I don't have a problem waging the battle that everyone else is afraid to wage. As a result of it, this is a rough-and-tumble program. It will challenge some of your presuppositions, it will challenge some of your pet theologies, Uh, it'll challenge uh, your own personal piety and self-righteousness, because if you think you have any righteousness of your own, I just might take you to task on that, because... um, and the biblical uh, view is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He's uh, here for sinners, and uh, and then even after you know, the thing is, is that all the reality is, is that your good works uh, probably will damn you. Yeah, it, I, I mean that. It, if you're relying on them uh, to somehow save you, then they will damn you. And there, there's no good work that you've ever done in your life that. Um, well, um, will earn you heaven or brownie points with God. Uh, God doesn't work that way. And uh, Jesus Christ himself basically said, and when you've done everything you've been told to do, say to yourself you are a, an unworthy, wicked servant because you've only done what you've been told to do. <sighs> yeah, you're saying, you're going, That's a strange place for you to start today, Chris. Yeah, I know. I'm kind of in the middle of a conversation in the middle of my own head. And so you get to join the conversation in progress. And uh Enjoy my insanity. All right. <laughs> I, I There's uh, so many things I need to get to today that I need to cut my own uh, uh, opening thoughts kind of close, uh, cut them short today, and uh, make some decisions as to what we're going to cover on this edition of Fighting for the Faith. 
Um, I want to do some fun stuff, and then we got to do some we got to do some heavy lifting as well. Uh, that being the case, uh, let, let's talk about some of the you know, just some weird things. Uh, today, I would like to uh, <clears throat> before we dive into anything else, I've got fantastic news for you out there that are those of you who are fans of William Tapley, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. He has a brand new song that he's posted up on YouTube. And uh, we wanted to, uh, you know, further his ministry. Uh, You know, this is the gentleman who, while he comes up with all the very strange prophetic angles in the news headlines, and we cover him from time to time. Well, uh, and he did a song. uh, We we played one of his songs a a few weeks ago, maybe more like a couple of months ago. I'm losing track of the time just because I'm old. But um, anyway, um, he's got a brand new, absolutely brand spanking new song that he's posted on YouTube. And the name of it is Doom and Gloom. I just can't, you can't make this stuff up. And uh, so before we do anything else on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I thought that maybe what we could do is um, play William Tapley's brand new song. That's right. That's William Tapley on the Casio keyboard. And, And you can't see this because it's radio, but... He's in front of a little creek, you know, in the middle of the forest. Obviously, his Casio has D-sized batteries in it so that he can play this wonderful little ditty. So, without any further ado, here's William Tapley. This is the lead-in for his brand new song, Doom and Gloom. will be toast. 
he this is the second song that he's put on YouTube where he really sounds like he's excited about this the destruction of I mean there's like this little smirk on his face like oh he can't wait for the United States and Britain to be toast you know and that'll happen during Gog and Magog 1 apparently World War Three, don't blame me. Store some water, food, and fuel immediately. his poetry skills are all that good yeah and in fact his prophetic newspaper readings are not that great either if you take his mark you'll join him in the fire you can win just don't sin state of grace you must stay You know what? I got to back this up because I want you to hear this theology here because this is going to tie into an email I'm going to read here in a second. Backing up this wonderful ditty that we um that we're hearing from um Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, uh William Tapley. L- listen again. Now I know you're thinking, "Chris, my ears are bleeding. Why do we have to hear this again?" Listen to the lyrics. I understand your ears are bleeding. Mine are too. That's what we have cotton swabs for. You can win. Just don't sin. State of grace, you must stay in. Now, did you hear that? You can win. Just don't sin. State of grace, you must stay in. How can it be a state of grace if I have to stay in it by not sinning? We continue. Sin. Please don't watch pornography. You can win, just 
don't sin. Moan and sin is what will make your God angry. Okay, got it. I just, wow. Okay, now, all of this kind of ties into email, and I'm going to, at least one of them, and I'm going to uh, cue up the email music here. Love this music because I can every time I listen to this, I can just picture you all you know sitting at your computers, you know, typing with this music in the background, you know, and at the speed. It's like kind of like Flight of the Bumblebee with a typewriter. Right, uh, I want to do some email here. Uh, now, with William Tapley's song still stuck in your head, and I know that many of you are just thanking me for that because, you know, now you're, you're for the next few days, you're going to have doom and gloom. Da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, all stuck in your head. And you'll have me to blame. And so, because, <laughs> you know, I just know you, this is, it's going to soar right to the bottom of the charts. I, I promise you. Anyway, um, uh, Scott writes, and I have no idea where Scott is from because Scott is a new listener, and Scott doesn't know that I, I, when you email me, it helps if you uh, let me know what town or what state you're from, or at least give me some general vicinity of planet Earth that you're writing from. And um, But regarding uh, eschatology, this is a follow-up email to something I said on a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith. Scott, Scott writes, he says, now, make no mistake, I love your program, it's... One of a kind, and, I, and I'm a new listener, but I think you're barking up the wrong tree in your eschatology, calling pre-trib theology works when you know people like John MacArthur, Phil Johnson, Todd Friel, Steve Lawson, and many others uh, whose theology supports the pre-trib rapture are not teaching a gospel of works. Now, Scott, you bring up a good point, okay? And what I was going after, and, I, and, the, and it's kind of this William Tapley thing. I want to point something out here. Now, as somebody who's spent some time in American evangelicalism, and at one time I completely bought into uh, the idea of a pre-trib rapture, okay? I've rejected it on biblical grounds, though, okay? But at the time, when the pre-trib rapture was taught to me, and it was always taught with kind of this kind of twist to it, okay? And it, it, you, what, how's the song go, uh uh, the whole left, you've been left behind song, you know, it's this idea that, well, you see, Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night and you, you just don't know when he's going to come. No, I mean, one second you're going to be, uh, you know, eating a hamburger at McDonald's and pop, you know, people are going to disappear and, and, and. Well, because you were eating a, a, a triple cholesterol burger, you, you were sinning. And so you're going to be left behind. See, you weren't ready. You know, you know, the time has come and you, you've been left behind, you know, and, and, and so, you know, there's always this anxiety that's preached along with the idea of the rapture and always this question, are you ready? Are you going to be left behind? Are you going to, I mean, you don't want to be left behind. And, and so, I mean, I, I gotta tell you, I, I remember as a kid having some, you know, close to the closest thing to sleepless nights as a kid can have, you know, sitting there in my bed thinking, man. I mean, am I going to get left behind? What can I do to get to make it so that I don't get left behind when Jesus secretly comes back and raptures the church? You see, now, 
it would be one thing if the pre-trib rapture folks would basically say, listen, um, you know, totally salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, and there's nothing you can do to prepare for Christ's secret return except for repent and be forgiven. Salvation is a free gift of God. And and what they if if they would preach that to Christians, you know, I think I might have well, let's just say um, less visceral reaction against that eschatology. Even though I can't, I I just I don't think biblically it can be supported at all, not at all. I mean, it's not, it's not what the Christian Church has taught through its history. It's it's not. I don't. It's it's. The the biblical evidence for the rapture is like you know so scant, and it, 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 it it's it's not taught. It's just not it's not something that's taught. But see, along with it goes this idea that you know you know it's what William Tapley was singing about. You know, doom and gloom. You know, you don't want to be left behind. You know, the rapture's coming. Just don't sin. You know, uh, don't look at pornography. So that what would happen is is that when I was growing up in the Nazarene Church with this teaching i mean the, the idea would you know kind of go something like this you know if you uh, committed a sin of the flesh you know uh you you went to second or third base with your girlfriend or um you know you had lustful thoughts you know and you know and this and you or you you know heaven forbid you did something really carnal you know like uh uh you know underage drinking uh dancing yeah the you, you, you yeah, because when you got to understand, in the Nazarene Church, dancing was a big—that that was a big angst thing. Yeah, you know, you know we, uh, the high school I went to, we weren't allowed to have a, a prom because dancing. Well, that's like horiz- you know, it, it's it, vertical sex. That's what dancing is. Uh, it, you know, at least that's what we were taught. And if, so, if you, you know, let, let's say th- four minutes right before Jesus secretly comes back, if you were dancing with your girlfriend and you weren't married to her, well, then you'd be left behind. Um, yeah, it, it's yeah, that's the way it was taught. And so, what the the idea here is, Scott, is is that. This pre-trib rapture thing, number one, I don't think it can be supported biblically at all. But number two, number two, the the what goes along with it is this you know this this whole angst about whether or not you're going to be left behind, and that's all works righteousness. It's a it, it's a salvation scheme. Uh, it's an eschatology and an angst that undermines salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, especially in the way it's taught practically by people. And so, um, you know, listen, Jesus is going to show up. It's going to happen, like, and when it happens, it's going to, like, you know, it's going to go down quick, okay? And um, you want to know how you can prepare for Jesus' return? Are you ready? Repent and be forgiven. Salvation is a free gift from God. There's no amount of good works that you can do that are going to uh, erase your sins. None. You you can't make yourself righteous before God. It's impossible. And as a result of it, salvation is a it's a gift. It's it's good news. And so, you know, I understand that what you were saying is is that, you know, that there's there's good guys like Phil Johnson and others. I I didn't know that I had no idea Phil Johnson was a uh, a pre-trib rapture guy. I didn't know that about him. Anyway, um, I, you know, the reality is I don't spend a lot of time on eschatology. I mean, that's just kind of me. 
you know, and it might be a psychological scar. You know, the reason why I don't spend a lot of time on eschatology is because I spent so much time worrying about whether or not to be left behind in the whole salvation by works thing. That that's really that what that is. Anyway, so so the, you got to understand when I when I'm attacking this idea of you know of the pre-trib rapture, there's two different things that I attack it on. One, biblically, I don't think it can be supported, but two. I absolutely rail against, and that's what I was railing against, Scott, in my in my little diatribe in the previous edition, is that the the teaching that you know, are you ready? Will you be left behind? All that kind of stuff. That is that is overtly works righteousness preaching that goes along with that, and it undermines salvation by grace alone through faith alone by Christ's work alone, and that has no business being taught in any Christian church anywhere, at least any church that proclaims that it's. You know that says that it's uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, G- yeah, Jesus is coming back, and it's going to happen quick. And uh, it could be tomorrow. It could it could be by the end of this program. So the question is, are you going to be left behind? Are you are you going to uh, face God's wrath and eternal judgment? Well, um, you might, but uh, it, it, l- l- let's uh, let's clear this up. Um, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. You are a wretched, rotten sinner, just like me. I, yeah, I, yeah, no, my righteousness, pfft, yeah, it's no, it's no bueno. Anyway, um, so uh, I have no hope whatsoever of, uh, of averting God's wrath through my, uh, through my good deeds, my, uh, my own righteousness by, avert, you know, avoiding particular vices. You know that. It's all that's too. It's too late for me. I, I've, I've earned hell. Yeah, I, I believe in damnation by works, and I've earned damnation by my works. Yeah, by, yeah, my deeds have earned me hell. So I mean, if Christ is going to return any second, it could be you know, any like any time now. You know, the question: How am I going to avoid hell? Because I mean, I've earned it. Um, the answer: Shed blood of Christ. Yeah. That you, the shed blood of Jesus Christ shed for me for the forgiveness of my sins, and I, there's no striving that I need to do. No, it, my salvation is secure by what Christ has done, and uh, and so you know what I just. You know, I'm glad your email gave me the opportunity to clarify that because the idea here is is that uh, there's there's a there's a piece of preaching that goes along with the pre-trib rapture thing that completely undermines salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. And that's really what I was going after. Okay, let's see here. Um, I got an email from Pastor Charmley. A little bit long, um, and it's a good one, too. Have we ever received a bad email from Pastor Charmley? No, I, I, I don't think we ever have. Anyway, Pastor Charmley writes, he, uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley uh uh, he writes. He says, "You know, he says it was most unhelpful of you to associate John Wesley with Pelagianism, and he's re- he's uh, Pastor Charlie. You are a, you were quick. I mean, he's referring to uh, the notes I was reading yesterday uh, from the uh, that I was reading on the program regarding Rick Warren's uh, purpose-driven Pelagianism uh, and." Um, Pastor Charmley, you know, you bring up a good point. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to let you flesh some of this out, and then I want to come back and respond because you've caused me to think about something, and, I, and I, I'll explain here in a second. Uh, he says, uh, having read the entire works of John Wesley, I incline to J.I. Packer's view that Wesley was in some ways an inconsistent Calvinist. 
Wesley's message was the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, and his Arminianism rarely amounted to much more than your Lutheran view of a universal atonement. I do think that you need to make more plain the distinction between Pelagianism, I save myself, original sin consists in following Adam's bad example, uh, salvation equals following Christ's good example, and semi-Pelagianism. The latter had a spectrum from strong, God helps me save myself, original sin uh, means following Adam's bad example, to weak, I I, I help God save me, original sin is an inherited corruption of human nature that God has to remove. Wesley is found decidedly on the weak side, even of Arminianism. To give one example, the classical Arminian theory of the atonement is the governmental or uh, Gratian, in which the death of Christ is is a public display of justice and nothing more. The Wesleys, however, taught a substitutionary and penal view, that of Christ making satisfaction for our sins, dying in our place. Later, Wesleyans uh, moved away uh, away from this, becoming more logically consistent, but less biblical, and incidentally, more semi-Pelagianism. The true father of modern American Pelagianism is Charles G. Finney, whose theology is far more philosophical than it is biblical. It is, of course, also more consistent, but Wesley regarded fidelity to Scripture far more highly than logical in, uh, than logical consistency, unlike Finney, who viewed logical consistency as more important. Pastor Charmy, you know, you bring up a good point, and um, and I got I I'll, I'll confess that um, I had not really spent too much time thinking really or even researching what really was Wesley's view when it comes to uh, the doctrine of original sin or total depravity if you're a, if you're a Calvinist. And, um, and the reason why I haven't really spent a lot of time is because the, the, the brand of, of Wesleyanism that I was exposed to uh, was not really a pure form of Wesleyanism. Uh, the Nazarene Church is unashamedly Wesleyan. In fact, if you look at, if you've studied their history, um, the, the, the Nazarene Church was attempting to kind of resuscitate uh, what they considered to be a flagging Methodism. You know, it, so it, it was on purpose a revival of Methodism. However, it was highly steeped in um, American frontier revivalism, which was heavily influenced by Charles Finney. So uh, the the at least the, you know my exposure to Wesleyanism was a Wesleyanism that was mixed with heavily mixed with uh, Finney's ideas and and his methodology. As a result of it, um, I I don't think I have you know, I had a correct uh, view of uh, of Wesley. So as a result of it, I think I, my 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 view of Wesley is tainted. Uh, by uh, or seen through a Finney lens, and and I think your emails brought this out rather poignantly. And you're right, though, uh, uh, that in semi-Pelagianism there's a spectrum. And uh, my my argument, though, my what I really truly believe regarding Rick Warren is that he's not semi-Pelagian. And um, you know, as somebody who has listened to and studied and paid really close attention to his theology and his statements. Uh, that he's made real, going on, you know, five, six years now. Um, I'm absolutely 100% convinced that Rick Warren is a full-blown Pelagian, that he's not semi-Pelagian. Um, let me let me uh, give, give you an example here. And I gave you an example yesterday 
from his purpose-driven preaching uh, methodology uh, from the notes that he gave during uh, the notes that I took during the lecture that he gave. And by the way, I have a a clean copy of of uh, that uh, of one of the lectures that uh, Warren has given on purpose-driven preaching. And um, I might play some sound bites in a future edition of Fighting for the Faith to kind of flesh this out. But do you remember when um, Rick Warren was on Hannity and Combs? And he he and uh, Sean Hannity is uh, I think is a Catholic, and uh, Alan Combs he's no longer uh, on that show with uh, Sean Hannity, but Alan Combs uh, kind of like uh, um, well he he. he Secular Jew would probably be the right way of putting it. You know, if he is Jewish, he's kind of he's not kosher and not practicing and all that kind of stuff. Um, and Rick Warren said to Alan Combs, he said, "Try Jesus for sixty days." And <laughs> I was like rolling my eyes. It's like what? <laughs> give G- yeah, you know, all we are saying is give Jesus a chance. And uh, so you know, give G- you know, try Jesus for sixty days, and if you're dissatisfied, you know, you can you know you can leave. And it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. It, at least it doesn't make any sense from Christ, a Christian theology point of view. But that kind of a statement makes perfect sense from a view of Pelagianism. And uh, and Rick Warren really, really, truly teaches that sin is kind of thought deep, and um, and you know, and if you really study uh, the debate, but you know, between uh, Augustine and Pelagius, and put it back, you know, go and study it historically, and you then trace back uh, through uh, what Rick Warren is saying. I don't think Rick Warren is semi-Pelagian. I actually think. He is full-blown Pelagian. Now, in the in, in semi-Pelagianism, there is a spectrum. There is a spectrum. You know this. You know, on the one hand, you've got you know that uh, you know that we're wounded by sin, and uh, and and you know it's me and God working down the primrose path together to kind of you know resuscitate me too. On the other hand, is is that um, you know the, it, sin is just you know a bad example inherited from you know this. So there is a spectrum, as Pastor Charmley has brought out. But you know, I got to tell you, Pastor Charmley. Your email has, you know, has caused me to think, you know, re- go back and rethink my experience. And as I look at it, I- I'm absolutely convinced that in the Nazarene Church that what I was experiencing was not pure Wesleyanism, but Wesleyanism mixed with uh, with the ideas and uh, methods of Finney. Anyway, um, you know, I... You made your point, and there's more to the email, but I'm gonna, I'm, I, I'm not gonna be able to get to it today. Anyway, so I wanted to bring that up. Uh, Pastor Charlie brought up a good point and uh, something worth considering. All right, we are up on our uh, first break, it, you know, and I haven't even told you what we're going to talk about in the rest of the program. Uh, when we get back, we're going to uh, listen to John Piper's response to Rick Warren's um, lecture. And, uh, you know, kind of parse that out. And also I'm going to read a portion of uh, an interview he just did with the uh, with Christianity Today, you know, kind of chiming in about, uh, you know, the controversy regarding Rick Warren's appearance. And um, and then on our sermon review today, we oh, man, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, then you know that I on uh, today I posted in the Museum of Idolatry, one of the most bizarre exhibits I've ever I, <laughs> I call it the helter skelter sermon opener, and it's it, by the way, it's it's yeah, uh, I it, it, what the, it, well, I don't know how to explain it. Um, 
it's this weird menagerie of weirdness that just doesn't make any sense with a talking lobster who's reciting the uh, lyrics from the Beatles tune Come Together. And uh, anyway, it's from Northridge Church in Plymouth, Michigan. And uh, we're going to be reviewing that sermon today. Uh, the name of the sermon is uh, the ga- uh, uh, "Change Your Game," and the name of it is "Risk." And you know, it, it, basically, they you know the theme for the whole thing is based on these uh, these board games, life, risk, monopoly, things like that. And um, and, and so the the name of the sermon is "Risk." And I, the reason I picked it is because I thought it would be a really good sermon to kind of tack on to. Uh, yesterday's uh, Rick Warren uh, lecture, and the reason why is because this is a, a quintessential example of a uh, of a purpose driven type of sermon uh, that talks about purpose and significance and things like that. And so that's going to be our sermon review today. And if you haven't if you haven't seen the Museum of Idolatry exhibit yet. Uh, the name of it is Helter Skelter Sermon Opener, and it's at a littleleven.com. Go and look at that uh, prior to the sermon review. You, you need to see it before we go into the sermon review because uh, otherwise you kind of miss something uh, in the sermon. So lots of strange stuff going on in the church today. Just <laughs> whew, weird, weird, weird. Anyway, uh, it, we're, I got to go to our break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, then uh, you can email me, uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. 
And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants! You know, so much holiness, holiness! Just praying all the time! Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester! You know, so much Chester! Just like Esau! Give prosperity to babies, and they'll be holy too! Make your babies run abnormally fast! They'll be as fast as Elijah! People watch them running and think they're Elijah! They'll race as fast as Elijah! In a race with the actual Elijah! And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel! Hey, go with the for sure thing! Don't gamble on your afterlife! Jesus! Try Bible thirst! The energy that will make you uh, holy! Uh, Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning, Pelagian, self-righteous, works righteousness, salvation people will be exposed here on this program. That's right. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up uh, to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, um, I got a little bit more audio from the Desiring God conference. And what I want to do is I want to play John Piper's uh, reaction to Rick Warren's speech um, it, like immediately after it uh, it played. So uh, here's, uh, here's the Desiring God conference, and uh, we'll, we'll be hearing from John Piper. Here we go. Oh, my. Um, it was a, a remarkable message in, in many ways. But I think the one thing I'll say is how intimidating this must feel to all of us. The guy is unbelievable communicator, right? Um, now, I want to pause right there. Yes, Rick Warren is an amazing communicator. Um, I liken Rick Warren to um, Bill Clinton, He's that good of a communicator. 
what, what, what he means by application is something he does like nobody else. He's got everything broken down. There's five steps here and three steps here and five steps here, and they're all insightful and rooted in the Bible, and they make me feel utterly un- unable to do it. Right. Those applications make you feel utterly unable to do it. Exactly, because Rick Warren confuses law and gospel completely. In fact, Rick Warren, for for the most part, predominantly preaches law. If you, in his way of thinking, he's preaching for obedience. And what you need to do, the reason why you're sinning is because you believe a lie, and he's going to replace that lie with the truth. And then once you have that, your your straight your your mental ideas straightened out, then you'll straighten up and fly right, and you won't sin anymore. That's the fundamental presupposition that's working behind his message. And if you don't know that, then this kind of this kind of stuff kind of like hits you by like a freight train. And you'll feel convicted. And the reason why you'll feel convicted is because he's preaching the law. And God's law convicts you. That's its purpose. It's to basically, it's a flamethrower designed to burn you down to a nubbins. So there ain't nothing left of your own righteousness. That was an insightful comment by John Piper. Now, I'm going to give Piper the benefit of the doubt in this sense, okay? Listen, the Desiring God conference, it's his gig. He, I don't think he wants to be an ungracious host. He's kind of being put on the spot at the moment, okay? That being said, um, he may have been too nice, but then again, maybe he agrees with Rick Warren. Maybe he's just trying to put the best construction on it. The problem is, is that Rick Warren, I mean, he was twisting God's word 30, well, 50 ways from Tuesday, Let's continue. So I, I, I think that what I should say to he, – he thought you were all pastors. You know, you could tell he was talking that way, but a lot of you are. And, and what I want to say is n- nobody believes that you should be you more than Rick Warren and that you shouldn't be him. And so if you come away from that feeling, <laughs> that was at 10 o'clock last night at a desk – Quoting 50 scriptures from memory and having a little... Yes, quoting 50 scriptures from memory. We'll just go with your number, uh, John. Quoting 50 scriptures from memory. Here's the problem, okay? Let's just assume it was 50 scriptures. Of the 50 scriptures that Rick Warren quoted, how many of them did he correctly convey what those passages were saying? Yeah, we learn from the from Jesus's encounter with Satan, you know, with the temptation of Jesus where Satan tempts him three times that Satan is quite capable. In fact, he's very um skilled when it comes to quoting the Bible. The problem is, is that when Satan quotes the Bible, he misquotes it. So, go back and rerun the tape. Now, even my review yesterday, I, there's no way I can catch everything. There's just no way. That guy was you know, throwing passages out left and right. So I had to kind of reserve my commentary for the blatant stuff that was completely taken out of context. 
You know, that being said, yes, Rick Warren quoted 50 scriptures. Past, uh, Pastor Piper, let me ask you, do you believe that Hebrews 11.6 is God saying that you have to have a dream, and that unless you have a big dream, uh, then it's impossible to please God? That's what Rick Warren said to people. D- do you believe that? Do you believe that the biblical admonition to pastors is for them to not give too much Bible to people and that they should basically give people just enough Bible so that they can apply it to their lives and obey it. And then once they got that down, then you give them more. That's what he said. Is Do you, do you think that's biblical? Do you think that's warranted? And having lists, I'm quitting. I'm just quitting. I just, <laughs> then just, just take heart because that's the way I felt. I mean, I'm just... I I would, let me go at a little theological piece that might just explain that a little bit. Um, You know the part where he he talked about um, application and uh, there were 14 life applications in my week and I can only manage one and so uh, teach your people less and um, work the application piece more. Did God do that on Mount Sinai? Teach, I mean, Pastor Piper, are you saying you agree with Rick Warren here? I mean, think about Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments. Did God go, okay, here, I got ten things I need to teach you guys, but he, listen, um, I don't want to overwhelm you. And so we're going to begin, okay, uh, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, number one, um... You shall have no other gods before me. So no idolatry whatsoever, and, and here's all the different ways that idolatry is, and here's the application. Now, once you you people get this one down, okay, um, I'm just going to hang out here uh, on the mountain and you know do my thing. Um, as soon as you guys have got that one down, then I'll give you number two. No. How about Jesus in his ministry? He said, okay, okay, listen, um, I know you guys are here to hear me preach and all that kind of stuff. Um, so here, here's the Sermon on the Mount. I, Jesus uh, sat down and began to teach, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, that's all I can tell you right now. Um, yeah, you guys need to apply that uh, before I can give you any more. No, actually, we learned from uh, from one of the gospel writers that uh, the the people heard Jesus preach for three whole days, and then at the end of it, he didn't want to send them away hungry. Uh huh. Three days, three days of preaching. Yeah. Uh huh. No. In fact, here's the problem, Pastor Piper. And as the people who listen to this program and who email me their experiences in uh, uh, churches that have followed Rick Warren's purpose-driven methodology, when Rick Warren says, listen, we need to teach less and, and push people to be obedient, that's exactly what they mean. And when Christians come to them and say, you know, I, I noticed you guys don't really open your Bible here. I'm not really being fed God's word. Those people are being bludgeoned to death with this idea. You selfish little Christian, how dare you come to me and tell me that you need to be given more Bible? 
Why don't you apply and obey the stuff that I've given you? And once you get that down perfectly, then come to me and we'll and you can tell me that you're ready for some more. You're sitting there going, there's people who do that? Yeah, I get the emails like that all the time. The one I read last week from the guy who left Eastlake Church in Seattle? Yeah, that was not... That was not a, an isolated email. That's stuff I get from people on a regular basis. And it's the kind of stuff that I hear at these uh, seeker-driven leadership conferences. That shows a fundamental misunderstanding about the Word of God. The Word of God is not the missing manual to the human life. Yes, there's stuff that's in there that tells us how we ought to live. There's oughts, but the, 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 the Bible really is the story of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And God gave his law to basically condemn us, to show us that we're sinful and in need of a Savior. And then the third use of the law is only for Christians anyway. shows us what a good work is. And Hebrews 11.6, basically what it says, without faith it's impossible to please God, it shows that it doesn't matter. You, you can't obey God. You can't obey enough in the sense that, you know, if you're thinking you're going to be saved by your good works, no way. So, yeah, it doesn't matter if you run an orphanage in the middle of the slums of of, uh, India and you do that and you feed the poor and all that kind of stuff. If you don't have faith in Christ, you're doomed. That's what Hebrews 11.6 is kind of getting at there. But Rick Warren has turned it into something else. So, Pastor Piper, I'm a little bit surprised at you. Maybe it's just because you didn't know what to expect. You need to spend some more time studying Rick Warren's theology and his Bible twisting. Um, there is a certain approach towards application there that isn't me, meaning... You, you give the message, you give the doctrine, you give the content, and then you turn towards, now, let's make a covenant with each other. Let's get five things, and we're going to check on you next week. And, and he, he builds an unbelievable, effective ministry that way. You know, the uh, Pharisees were very effective at getting people to be obedient. Yeah, I mean, I mean seriously, there were guys that were so holy and so so good at obeying God. I mean, they, I mean, they even tithed like a a, a 10% of the herbs growing in their garden. I mean, talk about an application. Uh, There, there is another way to think about transformation. And it is that, um, if roots go down deep and a tree gets healthy, it bears fruit. And that you might, week in and week out, so feed your people, so thrill your people, so deepen your people that they're bearing fruit in 30 years when the person who did the thing each week doesn't. Pastor Piper, I mean, seriously, think about this for a second. How is it possible for somebody to have deep roots with by withholding God's word? 
I think about it for a second. Okay. I'm going to limit how much of God's word you're going to get with the and here's the my expectation. I'm going to withhold God's word and only give you little pieces of it until you can obey what's what little portions I give you with the expectation you had better have deep roots and this had better start bearing fruit in your life. Does that make any sense at all? How on earth are Christians supposed to bear fruit by being withheld the very food that they need in order to have deep roots? If he were here, he'd get all over me about that, you know. And he'd say, oh, no, I'm not excluding that. It's both in. It's not either or. And That's right. But I'm saying I'm on the or side here. I just, I'm a, and, and, and if, and if uh, uh, C.J. Mahaney were here, he'd get on my case too. He's, Piper, you need to apply more. Be more, give another 10 minutes of your sermon to application. I say, okay, that's right, C.J. Okay, and I try and I just never have time. So I just want you to be encouraged that if, if... Have we ever stopped to think that um, the Bible has sections of it that have application and there's other parts that don't? Think about it. Okay, here... You'll notice that I don't do... I, I can't remember. I don't do... Do I do any application on this program? I got to think about that. But what I know for a fact that when I'm reading a passage and it tells you application, I give you application. Okay, but I don't. If I'm reading a section of scripture that doesn't have application, well, I don't give application. Because here's the deal: is is that not all passages are law; some are gospel, and it, it, it's it, it, this idea that we have to you you have to create an application. That's preposterous. Because the reality is is that. When God's law is preached, okay, it condemns sins and it shows Christians what a good work is. But the reality is, is that I can't tell you what the application is going to be for you personally. Okay, for instance, okay, let's uh, let's go with a passage from Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives. Okay. That's a big blanket that I've just put out there. And what's a good work? Husbands loving your wives. Well, what does that look like? Well, the reality is, is that for some of you, that's going to look very different than it's going to look for me. And let me explain, because each of us in our marriages, there are areas that we're strong and areas that we just, well, we stink at it. Yeah, just flat out. Okay. Some guys are really, really, really good about, you know, the giving flowers thing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm not knocking that. Okay. And other guys, they, they, well, they, they really stink at it. Some guys are good at writing poetry and other guys, they just kind of scratch and, and make bodily noises. And, um, so the, 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 when it's husbands love your wife, love your wives there's how that looks to you is going to look very different than how it looks to me because there's areas i'm working on right now and areas that you're working on and you we might be working on the same areas in our marriages but the thing what i'm working on may not even be close to what you're working on what i've mastered may not be what you've mastered and uh, the thing i think i've mastered well i may not have mastered it at all and so as a result of it when it comes to the application the how 
that's that could probably be as as unique a different application as many people are hearing it and so the i really truly think that when it comes to you know how that looks i don't like this idea of limiting it to five applications and saying it needs to look like this because the reality is is that if there's a thousand guys listening there might be a thousand different applications and that's the job of the holy spirit you understand what I'm saying? Anyway. If, if it feels like Saul's armor to try to imitate that, it probably is. He is him. He is him. And, and the, one of the big issues with, with any big shot that you put up, um, people tend to feel like, okay, to have a successful church, we've got to do it this way. And I just want to say it, it ain't necessarily so. Just relax with who you are. Are and just give it all to Jesus and and learn 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 as much as you can from from Rick. Okay, so that was um, what Pastor Piper said immediately after uh, Rick Warren's thing. And then uh, what happened is is that yeah, he there was an interview that just went up at the uh, Christianity Today website, and uh, the folks at Christianity Today asked Pastor Piper. They say you invited Rick Warren. Would you say he exemplifies thinking? Um. Here's what Pastor Piper says. He says, no, I don't think he exactly exemplifies what I'm after, but he is biblical. No, actually, um, I think Rick Warren is not biblical. I think he quotes the Bible and he misquotes it and twists it and mangles it. And he did so in, in breathtakingly bad ways at the Desiring God conference. Pastor Piper continues. He says he quoted 50 scriptures from memory. Yeah, but again, the question is, how many of them were really accurately conveyed what the text said? Um, he says, unbelievable, his mind is Vesuvius, a, volca- a destructive volcano. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. He says, so I asked him what impact reading Jonathan Edwards had on him, uh, what these authors like Carl Barth and Edwards do for him is give him a surge of theological energy that then comes through his wiring. What I wanted to do with Rick is to force him to talk about thinking so pragmatists out there can say a lot of thinking goes into what he does. Yes, Rick Warren is a thinker. I think the guy's brilliant. I think the guy is like a bonafide genius. I also think he's Bill Clinton, and I think he's a Bible twister extraordinaire. And anyway, uh, Pastor Piper says, you received some negative feedback for inviting him. He says, he says it, it was real risky. I don't even know if I did the right thing. No. Well, here's the deal. Pastor Piper, it's, listen, you invited him. It's done. The question is, are you going to do the right thing now? Okay. The question is, are you going to do the right thing now? Because Rick Warren blatantly twisted God's word and said some things that that are absolutely false. And I mean, in in reality, he taught falsely and he he blasphemed during his uh, Desiring God lecture. The question is, are you going to do the right thing now and challenge and rebuke the false teaching and make it clear, listen, I can't. I on biblical grounds, I cannot agree with Brother Warren here, and I have to make it clear that I disagree with him strongly. Will you do that? So it's listen. Yes, it was risky for you to for you to bring him, but more importantly, right now, more importantly, right now, the the issue is: Are you going to do the right thing and take his false teaching and his Bible twisting to task? 
or will you quietly stand by and give a tacit approval to what he said? Let me continue. He says, I don't even know if I did the right thing. If somebody said, are you sure you have, uh, are you sure you should have invited him? No. I think the first thing I'd say is maybe the only thing is I think he's been slandered. I I think we probably need to work harder at getting him right. I think Rick Warren needs to try harder at getting the Bible right. I appreciate you being a kind host. But the reality is, is that the body of Christ needs you, John Piper, right now to step step up and stand up for the truth. That's what's really, really needed right now. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Strange sermon today. Need to listen carefully. You will hear the gospel at the end of it, though. And the problem is, is that kind of the story that he tells ahead of time. This is a, it's all the hook 
to try to get to the gospel at the end. So this is kind of a, a purpose-driven evangelistic sermon. Yeah, I know it. If you've seen the video, then you're going, what? I know. I just hang on. Let's uh, cue up the music and we'll get right into it. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Northridge Church in Plymouth, Michigan. Pastor Brad Powell uh, presiding. The name of the sermon series is Change Your Game. And uh, this is part four of the sermon series on the game of Risk, although the game Risk is not mentioned. Uh, Other games that they've mentioned so far are Solitaire and Simon Says. Now, with this in mind... um, Yeah, I don't know. This is bizarre. If you haven't... (laughs) If you're listening on a podcast and you haven't seen the video yet, pause, <laughs> pause, and go to alittleleven.com and look for the exhibit entitled Helter Skelter Sermon Opener and watch it. <laughs> it's, it's a nightmare, it, but it you, you it's actually important for you to see it in order so that you can kind of get something in its the sermon i'm gonna kill the music here anyway so without any further ado here is um change your game um risk yeah here we go i'll have to explain what it is you're listening to here in a second here we go okay what you're not seeing is that there's a guy dressed up in a big lobster suit and he's going to start quoting from the beatles song come together He come grooving up slowly. He got juju eyeball. He won. Holy roller. He got hair down to his knee. Got to be a (laughs) joker. He just do what he please. Um, and now a mime has come on stage behind him, and in a minute, little Bo Peep is coming out, an Elvis impersonator will be there, a guy with a python and a snake will all walk by. This is just a bizarre, nightmarish menagerie, and this is what's opening up this, this sermon. He wear no shoe shine, he got toe jam football. He got... Monkey finger, he drink Coca-Cola. The actual lyric there is, he shoot Coca-Cola. He say, I know you. You know me. One thing I can tell you is that you have got to be free. Come together right now. 
over me. I mean, who knew the Beatles were Theo poets? He bagged production. He got <laughs> walrus gumboots. He got oh no cyborg. He won spinal cracker. He got feet down below his knee. Hold you in his armchair. You can feel his disease. Come together right now over me. Hey, what are you doing? No, I'm not finished yet. No, I got more lines. What? What is that smell? Is that a pot of boiling water? No! And thus perish Mr. Lobster. I, wow. What in the world are you clapping about? Seriously. <laughs> I think it has no point or meaning in your, oh yeah, that's great, entertainment. It blows my mind. Now... Uh, some of you are shell-shocked. I mean, uh, if you've come to Northridge before more than one time, you know that y you never know what you're going to get. But if, if you're newer or you're a guest, you're probably going, what am I doing here? Uh, someone told me this was church. This is not church. But the, the truth is, there's always something going on behind the weird stuff, even the weird stuff that we do. But you're probably all asking, I don't get how that figures into anything. How can that mean anything? Well, it does mean something. It is a great illustration of the game that we play, this game we called life. And so what we're going to do, we are going to take a spin and we're going to look at the reality of our lives. We're going to tell the Now that whole take a spin thing, what you don't see, if you y'all ever played the the board game Life? Yeah, it's an estrogen filled game. I noticed that uh, growing up that um the girls like to play it and, uh, you know, because what would happen is, is you had to pick a career and then you had to get married and you had kids and the little kids go in the car and all that kind of, you know, I just, yeah, I, I can't say that I was much of a fan of the game of life because um, just way too much estrogen filled. But anyway, um, the, 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 the uh, game itself, um, you know, the, the little spinner you know, that has the numbers on it, they have a jumbo sized, I mean, a ginormous uh, prop on stage. I mean, this is huge. I mean, really, really huge uh, version of that on stage. And so he says, take a spin. He just spun the, um, the, uh, the wheel. Well, the truth about how we live our lives and that thing we just saw, whatever it was and whoever thought that the Beatles would be communicating messages in church, but whatever that come together thing was about, it really does paint the picture of how we live our lives. Because think about it. Every day we get up and we kind of think we know what life's about and then it throws us curveballs. I mean, which one of us doesn't wake up and get surprised during the day? We think we've experienced it all, but we haven't even experienced anything yet. Isn't life almost always confusing? Come on. 
I mean, isn't life extremely random? You think you know what's supposed to be going on, but all kinds of stuff comes down just like the bizarre randomness of that sketch. And that's how life is. Life can be bizarre and strange at the same time, sometimes fun. But often, though we think it should make sense, though we long for life to make sense, often what we experience on a daily basis, if we're honest, doesn't make sense. It's just like that lobster thing. It just doesn't make sense. In fact, some of you were thinking, this church is now officially out of control. I mean, having lobsters flying out of the ceiling and all that stuff. But isn't life officially out of control the way we live it? Come on. I mean, it's bizarre. And yet, though random and seemingly out of control, and though it doesn't make sense, and though it's often bizarre, and though it's very far from what we long it to be, there are times that we can still enjoy this thing we call life, right? But there are also times when we can be miserable. And here's the interesting thing to me. The interesting thing to me is that different people respond to the exact same experiences in different ways. I mean, I get to watch your reaction. It's a fun place to be. And during that weird lobster gig that we just put on, some of you were having the best time you've ever had in church. I mean, it was enjoyable. You were going, man, if this could be longer and Brad could be shorter, that would be awesome, you know? I mean, you were having a blast. Others of you were here and you were miserable. You were thinking the church has sunk to an all-time low. We can't even call this place a church anymore. It's not supposed to be dealing with the trite and the superficial. How lame. This has just gone too far. And you were miserable. And yet you were experiencing the same thing. So- now, I want to point something out here. Um, we, with the, um, the lobster thing, we were officially six minutes into the sermon. Where's God's word? I mean, notice we didn't begin in God's word. We kind of began with almost an existential type question or an existential issue. Um, How many of you have this experience that life is out of control and doesn't make sense? Now, granted, um, life does throw some curveballs at me from time to time. But for, I mean, for the most part, uh, my life isn't out of control. And it does make sense. It's, I mean, I... I can't remember the last time I've seen a large lobster reciting Beatles lyrics. I mean, I or, you know, a mime just walking out of nowhere and all these random bizarre things. I that's not my life. So if if, you know, if, if for the most part the life that I live makes sense and isn't out of control and isn't random or bizarre and like uh, some bizarre Lewis Carroll type Alice in Wonderland type of dream, then apparently I don't need Jesus. Right? Some experiencing joy, some experiencing misery. Some happy with us, some mad at us. Isn't it just like life? Welcome to the game of life. The problem is, the game of life as we're experiencing it, the game of life as we're playing it, the game of life as we understand it, is not the life that God designed for us. But I've got some great news for you. You can change your game. And that's what this series is all about. And as we get into this whole concept... So the life I'm experiencing isn't the life that God designed for me. But the good news is is that it isn't Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. It's something else. Okay. This weekend, you need to know, if we're going to change our game, then we have to understand that though it seems random and it seems like there's no point, there really is a point and we have to get a hold of it. 
We have to take all the random, bizarre things that go on and we have to realize that it all can come together for a point when we understand life from God's perspective, which gets me to our realities. If we're going to change our game, truly experience life as God designed it, then we have to ultimately understand the realities we're facing. Too many of us never, ever get the game right because we never truly understand the realities. Here's the first reality. God really did create all of us for a significant and specific plan. God. Okay, did you hear that? This is purpose-driven preaching at its core. So we got a reality number one. Uh, that God created each and every one of us for a specific plan. Okay, so you, you know, if you want, if you want to correctly play the game of life, then you have to understand that. Well, you were created for a very specific purpose. Now, we've heard this a thousand different ways from Tuesday. Uh, it, it's, I mean, over and again, this is like one of the major themes in these seeker-driven churches. And what does it end up doing? Puffing up egos and basically, um, y'all, y'all seen the television show Heroes? The first season was the only season worth watching. I mean, if 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 you've you know, it, the whole thing fizzled out. I mean, but in this in in the uh, television show Heroes. Uh, what happened is, is you have people who who genetically have made a an evolutionary leap forward, and they have special powers. But they they, they in the uh, in the open, opening episodes they kind of chronicle how these people discover their their special abilities. Okay, um, when I hear this kind of preaching, that God has created you for a specific purpose, you know, he, he, there's something very unique. I mean, I feel like this turns Jesus into some kind of career guidance counselor and that what, what's going on here is kind of like, you know, the discovery of um, of your special abilities uh, vis-a-vis the uh, from the first year of, of the television show Heroes. You know, OK. All right. Um, so where is this great doctrine of God has specifically created you for a special purpose? Okay, now listen. I mean, what about Pharaoh? Yeah, think about that guy, Pharaoh from you know, like the Book of Exodus. You know, Moses says, "Let my people go." Yeah, sorry, I'm singing again. Anyway, um, so you got Moses telling Pharaoh, "Let my people go," and God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and God's glorified through the whole thing. Um, did God specifically? create Pharaoh to destroy him? What did, what did I mean, was he living a purpose-driven life? You know, I, I ask these kind of questions because there's, there's some weird ends to this. This smells like f- philosophical career guidance counseling rather than biblical and doctrinal theology to me created each and every one of us, not just some of us, not just the lucky few. God created each and every one of us for a significant and specific plan. It's not supposed to be random, bizarre, not making sense and with no point. It's not supposed to be out of control. The truth is God's made you for a significant and specific plan. He really has. Now, though we battle with that by our experiences, look what God says to similar people to us 
battling the same concept. They thought it was all bizarre and random and didn't make sense and out of control and hurting them. But look at what God says in Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I'm not trying to mess with you. Okay, Bible twist number one. This is a big Bible twist, severe Bible twist. This is a complete abortive mishandling of God's word. Okay, the question at hand is, is God, does God promise that he's got plans for you, plans to prosper you, you know, plans to, you know, all that kind of stuff? No, this is not written to you and I specifically, okay? Jeremiah chapter 29, if you have your Bible, flip on over, okay? This is a classic uh, purpose-driven Bible twist, okay? This is one of the big ones. Jeremiah chapter 29, I read starting at verse 1. Uh, our three rules for biblical interpretation, context, context, context. <clears throat> These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who was this letter written to? Oh, yeah, the exiles, okay? Now, let me continue reading. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem and the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elia, uh, 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 sorry, El- Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, <clears throat> this is the letter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. How come those guys never quote verse 5? God is commanding you to build a garden. I mean, you know what? I should not be joking about this. I, you know, because I... I I could just I can see this happening. I could see uh, some some liberal purpose driven guy is going to go. Okay, today we're going to be preaching on how to be green God's way, and Jeremiah chapter twenty nine verse five says, "Plant gardens and eat their produce." See, God is commanding you. If you don't have a garden in your backyard and it's not organic, then um then you're disobeying God, man, and. You know, uh, I'm, I'd be very disappointed. But don't, you shouldn't, if you're going to grow chickens, don't kill them and eat them because that's like not cool, man. But see, God says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 5, plant gardens and eat their produce. See, God's all about being green, dude. You know, I'm telling you somebody's going to do that. I, it's probably already happened. You know, anyway. I hate giving these guys ideas because then it ends up in their sermons and then I get blamed for it. You know, that's <clears throat> anyway, uh, verse five, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there. Do not decrease, but uh, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf and for its welfare, and you and you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, <clears throat> and uh, do not listen to the dreams that they dream. <laughs> yeah. 
<clears throat> Somehow I feel like this applies to Rick Warren's little thing about dreamers yesterday. And don't listen to the dreams they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you the promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and you will pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations. Yeah, you see how this doesn't, Yeah, this is a, a historical letter written by God to the exiles in Babylon. This is not a universal application text that where we can say, see, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you. Who's the you there? It ain't, it ain't you. It ain't me. Because are you, by the way, I mean, it could be you. I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't assume. I mean, if you happen to be one of the surviving exiles, this was written to you. I apologize if any of you are out there and you're several thousand years old and this was actually written to you. Anyway, we continue. With your head, it's to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. God created you in spite of the life you're experiencing. God created you for a significant and specific plan. That's a reality you need to know. Of course, the problem... And Jeremiah 29, 11 doesn't teach that. Problem is, the second reality. Though he created us for a significant and specific plan, every single one of us has lost sight of God's plan for our lives. And we... Have- uh, you mean we've sinned? Yeah, um... If you really kind of want to get a thumbnail sketch of what God's plan for your life look like looks like, read the Ten Commandments. Yeah, read them, read them, read them as rather than negatives, read them as positives, and you'll uh, you'll see the thing, the good works that are revealed there. Um, you're talking about sin, Brad. Sin, lost sight of God's big plan for my life. That sounds like a euphemism. I mean, it sounds like you're shaving off the. I mean, come on, let's get real here, okay? <clears throat> things seem out of control in your life. I, I, let me, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, let me see if I can kind of re-preach this, this little point here. Things seem out of control in your life, right? Things seem kind of like random and then they're like out of control. You know, your live-in boyfriend left you for another live-in girlfriend. Yeah, you know, um, you, 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 there's big holes in your life because, well, you spend your time, uh, you know, you, you spend two, three nights a week completely sloshed. You're 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 gone, or you're using uh, quote recreational drugs, or um, you're completely wasting your time. Uh, you know, and doing and you know, we'll name the thing. Uh, you know, you're caught up in this sin or that sin or whatever. Yeah, there's a reason why. You know, it seems like one thing after another hits you, and it, and all these bizarre things are happening to you. It's because you're sinning. It's because you have broken God's holy law and his commandments. And do you think for a second that God is going to just sit there and say, oh, that's okay. Don't worry. I, you know, I, I, I'm just like a senile old grandfather with, you know, pipe that smells like type, pipe tobacco and have, you know, butterscotch in my pocket. No, 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 but don't, but no, it's, uh, um, Brad, God's big plan for us is to live holy and perfect lives under his law. We have veered off track. I mean, we really have. 
Look at how Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says it. We all, every one of us, just, just as we all have been created for a specific plan by God, we all, like sheep, have gone astray from God's plan. Each of us has turned to his own way. We've decided to write our own plan. We've decided to live our own way. We've decided to go our own way. And because of that, now, a life that was... Uh, Brad, that's called sin. And you know what? The other thing is, it's, it's almost... I mean, this is practically a crime. The, the, you know, it's at least a misdemeanor. It could be a felony. I'm, I'm not sure. But to quote Isaiah 53 and only quote verse 6, from a preaching point of view, I mean, this is at least a misdemeanor and possibly a felony. And the reason why is because Isaiah 53 is one of the chapters from the Old Testament where the gospel is clearly, clearly taught. Uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Isaiah 53. Watch this. I mean, it's great stuff here. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and uh, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty. We should look on him. This is talking about the suffering servant, who is Jesus. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. <clears throat> Brad, I mean, you quote half of the verse of Isaiah 53 and you completely omit the gospel part. Maybe the reason why you did that is because then you'd, if you were to actually bring that up, you'd have to realize that Isaiah 53 is about Christ and what he did for us. And this idea of, oh, we like sheep have gone astray. You know, we've gone after our home plans. You know, our lives are random and out of control. And kind of like a lobster pro, uh, quoting the um, the Beatles. That's because of sin. Sin. S-I-N. We've broken God's commandments. We are sinful and rebellious against God. And it burbles up from deep within us from our broken, sinful, and corrupt human nature. Ay. Yeah, talking about shaving off the hard edges, you know. Has lost its meaning. A life that was meant for a point has lost its point, and it seems like it's out of control, random, and doesn't make sense. But it's not God's problem, it's our problem. We're the ones that have rewritten the plan, and it's a mess. The Bible word for this is lost. Every single one of us is lost. We have literally... The Bible word is sin lost focus on why we're here and we have veered so far off track that we really have no ability to understand the concept of God's original design. So notice how he's redefining sin and shaving off all the hard corners. Sin now is, well, we've lost track of God's big plan for our lives. You see, each and every one of us, well, we're super special. And um, we're so super special that God has a unique thing that he's created each of us for. And it's probably so that each and every one of us can become president of the United States and make a difference in the world. 
Yeah, forget the fact that there's only one president chosen every four years. God probably uniquely picked every one of us to be president. And um, and so, but, but, but see, we've lost focus. Mm-hmm. We've been distracted. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, the, and if we would just get refocused and understand that, well, God wants to reveal this great big plan for our lives that we can we can understand our cosmic purpose and um and so what we need to do is refocus ourselves and then once we do that god will say okay i can see you're being serious so now i'm going to tell you the big plan that i've been waiting to tell you but i I had to wait for you to get focused again you know because you were like a procrastinating uh, student with add in fact, someone starts talking about God's original design. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't match our experience. It's not the game of life at all. And so we dismiss it as being out there. We can't even conceptualize it. And we certainly have no connection to God's original plan. We have veered so far off track. It's as if there is no plan. There is no point. You might as well bring lobsters out of the ceiling and sing come together because it's just that's as good as it gets. Might as well have a little bit of fun because there's going to be even more misery. Our creative team does such a great job. They found a video clip that I believe paints the perfect metaphor of how most of us live our lives. It really does. You have to look into this thing. It's the perfect metaphor of how we live. We're making choices. We're doing things. But we don't have a clue how it's going in. Look at how it looks when it's painted through a perfect illustration. Watch. Quick cash. The most confusing game show of all time. (laughs) Now, everybody is in on it, except for this guy, Dan. The experiment, after hearing two minutes of rules that no human being could follow, will Dan have the nerve to stop a live game show and admit he has no idea how to play this game? Anson is buzzed in. North Dakota. Boy, so close. No, it is not North Dakota. Dan is buzzing in. I'll say South Dakota. South Dakota is absolutely right, Dan. Nicely done. We award you, of course, 1,000 points. You have jumped into the lead that quickly. Anson is buzzed in. I'd like to unblitz. He's unblitzing and taking the $1,000. We move the $1,000 over to Anson. Anson, you have $1,300. Chris, you get... Yes. You want to use the silver card? Yeah. You take $500. We award $500 to Chris. Yes, Dan is going to use this card. 100 points, Dan, for coming in late with the silver card. Split or double up, Anson? Double up. We give you 2,600. Chris, what do you want to do with your $500? Split. We take that down to 250. Move the 250 over to Dan. You now have 350, Dan. You want to split? I'd like to double. You'd like to double? Dan, tell me your thinking on that. When exactly did you decide that you would, in fact, double up? Uh, when you asked me. Sure, good thinking. Give Dan a big round of applause. We're going to buzz in for mystery numbers. Hands up. And now. Yeah, Dan has buzzed in very quickly. Dan, I'm holding three cards, an A, a B, and a C. Tell me which card you'd like to go with. B. Yeah, 15,000 points. That's the absolute maximum. Anson has buzzed in. I'd like to blitz his B card. He's going to blitz the B card. We have no choice, Dan, but to award Anson the 15,000 points. (laughs) That's a money flip on the three buzzers. And scramble... One thousand, three thousand, nine thousand, Chris. No challenge, Pat. No challenge from Anson. Chris, you've been blocked, and we go to Dan. Dan has buzzed in at minus seven thousand. What do you want to do, Dan? I want to win. You want to win? <laughs> All right. Have 
your second silver, Anson. I like to use my second silver. Anson's going to use the and second silver his card. Negative seven thousand. All right, he's been moved down to negative five. We're going to double that. That makes it, of course, negative ten. Blitz. Anson has come in. Unblitz, Chris. Unblitz, Chris. No card the rest of the game. No card the rest of the game. That's right. You can freeze there. Dan. I'd like to take all their cards and all their points. You cannot, after two moves, take the silver card. Okay. That's against the rules. How are you feeling at this point, gentlemen? Really confused. A little bit confused? It's a perfect metaphor of life. It really is. I mean, think about it because we wake up every day, set the alarm. Do, is that really a perfect metaphor for life? Think about it for a second. Okay. Um, I used Steve Jobs recently. I'll use him again. Steve Jobs, not a Christian. And he's the CEO of arguably the most successful computer company of all time. Do you think he doesn't feel like he knows what his purpose in life is? Do you think he wakes up really kind of, you know, his life experience is like that game show where he doesn't even know the rules and and has no way of functioning. It's all just random in his life. I don't think so. This is not my experience in life, and I don't think this is that many people's experience in life. So it's not a perfect metaphor. I, I don't. I, in fact, I, I'd like to throw the silver blitz card on this guy, you know, because so I, I need seven thousand points. Get up, and we just make choices, and we have no clue what's going on. We're just watching, like, oh, we got to do that, got to do that. That's what other people are doing. Let's do that. Let's do that, and we have no clue. But if we ever really looked into each other's eyes, we'd see the same insecurity that that guy had. It was so obvious. But you know why we don't look in each other's eyes very often? It's because we're afraid they'll see that we have no clue what we're doing. We're all playing a game and we have no idea what the point is and we just keep playing it and pretending like we've got it all figured out and we don't have it figured out at all. It's just frustrating and bizarre and random. It makes no sense. It's out of control. But we just keep there hitting the buzzer thinking that's what we're supposed to be doing. It's crazy. We need to. We need to get a hold of this fact. God created this thing we call life with a significant specific point for each and every one of us. We've just lost sight of it. So we're now just doing the stuff that other people are doing, and we're insecure. I love that guy's honesty when he said, all I want to do is win. Of course. And that's what we want to do. The problem is, when you win in a game, you have no clue what the point is. You're winning nothing at all. And that's what he was doing. And in the end, he just said, I'm just confused. And if we were really honest, that's where we would get to. We'd say, I'm just really confused. I have no idea what's going on. Well, it's time to back out like that guy did and figure it out. So God created us for a significant and specific plan. We've lost sight of it and therefore veered off track. What we have to do is realize the consequences of that. When we veer off track and we don't understand the point, we start pursuing the wrong things. If you don't know the point... You're going to pursue the wrong things. And that's where we're all at. We're all pursuing the wrong things. That guy was pursuing. He didn't know. It. He was pursuing all the stuff. And uh, silver card, bliss, woo, bring it all together. Just didn't even work. And then he started making it up his own rules. You know, I'll just take all their stuff. And he goes, you can't do that. And it was like he was making up his own rules. And that's what most of us do. We don't know the point, so we're pursuing the wrong things. And in pursuing. So if we just knew the point of life, then we wouldn't pursue the wrong things? Hmm. No, all of us are sinful by nature. We strive after, lust after the wrong things. If you, I mean, even if God were to tell us the point of life, you know, the, the answer to life, the universe, and everything, by the way, it's 42. Um, even if God were to give us the answer, 
people would still go the wrong way because we're sinful by nature. Our problem is not that we don't have the meaning to life. Our problem is is that we we are sinful and rebellious against God. Hello? The wrong things. We're making up our own rules. And we think it's going to get us where we want to go. But let me ask you, switch around the consequence of that game. Let's say the guy had 500,000 points and he was winning instead of minus 7,000 and losing. It would have been no different. He would have still been lost. He would have still been frustrated. He would have still been confused. He would have still not known anything that it was about. And it would have meant nothing in the end because the game had no point. What a waste. We have to realize something. And it's the last reality. Nothing we do, big or small, great or not so great, nothing we do in life apart from God's purpose for us, plan for us, will ever give us any kind of benefit or satisfaction in the long term. None. Uh, Seriously, I mean, I know some very satisfied non-Christians. They've got amazing lives. I mean, they're wealthy, they're affluent. Um, they, I mean, seriously, I, 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 I challenge this. I've talked to people who are non-Christians who they're completely satisfied. Life has been good to them. I mean, I mean, if Dan had won, it wouldn't have meant anything. If he had lost, it wouldn't have meant anything because the game had no point. And the same is true with our lives. We're all struggling to win this game. We want to win. And so we're working really hard to do it. But the truth is, win or lose is nothing because it's not even the right game. Nothing you accomplish in life will ever bring you the benefit and satisfaction you're looking for unless what you're doing matches your God-given significant plan. Oh, okay. So can I point something out here? He just said nothing you do will bring you satisfaction unless you're doing God's specific plan for your life. Um, well, okay. Um, so it has nothing to do with whether or not you have a right relationship with God. It just matters as to whether or not you're doing the thing that God made you for. So in other words, if God made you, well, if you're Pharaoh and God made you to, you know, resist him then well then you were satisfied in your resisting of god yeah or in steve jobs's case even though he's not a christian god probably made him to make you know apple computers uh so he's already doing his god-given plan even though um he's not a christian he just happened to stumble on it you know he blindly fell i mean even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then right Uh, Just so you can see this, we did a bunch of music in this service this weekend, and the the music all played to this point. We had this really cool drum solo at the beginning where it was simply saying, everything is exactly the same, over and over, exactly the same. We're just doing the same thing, no point, so frustrating, so empty, so random, so bizarre, and that's where many of us are. Then we did this thing about the wheel of life, you know, just goes around and around and around and around, just keeps turning, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It's so random, it's so without point, it's so out of control no matter how hard we try we're not getting where we want to go because we have no clue where that is god gave us a great example of the fact that no matter what you accomplish you'll never have true satisfaction apart from his plan through a guy named solomon solomon was an old so okay now verse count so far okay we are uh 17 minutes 20 seconds into the sermon two verses out of context 
Jeremiah 29, 11, Isaiah 53, half of verse 6. Are we really hearing biblical preaching at this point? No. And see, the, the, one of the, you want to know the reason I'm challenging a lot of the stuff that this guy's saying? Because he's not reading this from the text. This isn't revealed in God's word. This is just his philosophy. This is his speculations. Pastors are not called to get up and give their opinions, to give their speculations, to give their philosophies, or to, you know, to, to give their rambling musings about how they think the universe works and whether or not sinners can be satisfied in, in what they're doing. Yeah, he's not teaching the word. And all of this, by the way, is really a sales pitch. This is an evangelistic sermon. What he's trying to do here, um, I've managed uh, salespeople before, by the way. Um, something I feel like I should probably repent of and be forgiven. Anyway, um, I've, I've, now if you're a salesperson, I apologize. Not all salespeople are bad. I, I, well, actually, they all, they're all sinners. But um, I know a thing or two about sales because, well, I've trained salespeople and I've managed them. And one of the sales techniques that salespeople engage in is is that um, in order to sell you on something, they engage in subtle ways of making you feel dissatisfied with the status quo. See if you know if you know you know if you know how's that car of yours? Oh yeah, it's that looks that looks like it's really beat up. Yeah, it's not doing so great. Yeah, boy, I bet that that really is embarrassing to have to drive to work every. Yeah, it, it really is. You know. I can help you solve that embarrassment. Just take a look over here. We've got the the 2010 uh, Daihatsu, and uh, yeah, you see what I'm. So, what he's doing right now is that he's he's in. He's, this is a sales tactic. He's selling the gospel because that's what's going at the end of this. He's going to reveal the solution for all of this random dissatisfying life that people are supposedly having, and what he, and what he's promising him. Hey, let, let me if I can get you into a 2010 Jesus. I got to tell you, the 2010 Jesus, this Jesus, the, the, this Jesus model. I'm telling you, the 2010 Jesus. He is. I guarantee you that he's going to make your life so satisfying that you will never, ever have feelings of dissatisfaction in your life ever again. In fact, the 2010 Jesus promises that if you uh, if you give your life to him, then what he's going to do is he's going to reveal to you a very specific plan for your life that he had for you from like the foundations of the earth, man. I'm telling you, and this plan is like tailor-made for your particular genetic makeup. I'm telling you. So I mean, you, if I so what, what's it going to take for me to get you into a 2010 Jesus today? I mean, we've got some, we've got really easy monthly payments. Mm-hmm. It's only 10 percent of your salary every month. Uh huh. I, I know it's I, it's such a bargain. Yeah, for a 2010 Jesus, I mean, you can't go wrong. So what, what do I need you to do to sign the dotted line today on this 2010 model Jesus? Testament king, and I mean, he was one of the richest guys in the world, one of the smartest guys in the world, one of the most powerful guys in the world of his day. I mean, he had it all. He was playing the game, and he was winning. 
Look what he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. I mean, he's, he's playing the game and he's winning. I've got it all. I can have any pleasure I want. I can have anything I want. I can do anything I want. I'm doing it all. And that was what I lived for. And that was my delight. I hit the buzzer and I got the points. Woo! And then look what he says about it in verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 2. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, without point, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Nothing we do, great or small, apart from God's specific purpose for us, will ever benefit or satisfy us in the long term. Uh, Man. Do you think the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is you finding your purpose in life? Was that the reason why Solomon talked about the chasing after the wind? Let me play some more of the sermon. I'm going to look something up in my Lutheran study Bible. We'll continue. I'll chime in accordingly. So if it seems like I'm going to interrupt you in the future here in the sermon review and it doesn't quite fit where we're at, yeah, I'm putting down a marker here. I'm researching something while he's talking. Thing, But we can change our game. So the truth that I want you to see this weekend is that we can change our game all right, but if we're going to change our game, we must know and live God's plan for us. If we're going to change our game, it only is going to happen by knowing and living out our specific and significant God-given plan. There was a guy named Saul of Tarsus in the Bible. He was, a, he was a guy who was set up to win the game of life as it was being played by most people. The game for position, the game for power, the game for prosperity. He had the best education. He was set up to win, and yet he was still experiencing... Knew it. I found it. I'm sorry. I told you I was going to interrupt. Yeah, this guy's just bloviating. Anyway, hang on a second here. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Mm-hmm. Solomon in Ecclesiastes is actually building up to something, okay? And you're going I know you're not going to believe this, but it what I'm going about to say is true. Are you ready? The big thing that he's building up to about all of the, you know, chasing after the wind and meaningless that the solution isn't to find your purpose. I yeah, I know, can you believe that? I it, some may actually want to take me outside of the city gates and actually throw rocks at me until I stop breathing. Um for I mean for daring to even say such a thing. But the reality is, is the the point of all of this, of the book of Ecclesiastes, is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all of this has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. <laughs> it's like the answer 42. The, uh, the punchline of all of this is not find your purpose. It's fear the Lord. Keep his commandments. This is the duty of man. Yeah, not nothing there about finding your purpose. Yeah, I just, I, I found, you know, just, I, I knew, I just remember a note on this. I just had to find it. Is that what we're hearing from uh, Brad here? Fear the Lord, keep the commandments. Yeah, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. Yeah, that, that, that points us to faith in Christ, repentance, forgiveness of sins, and then doing good works. Yeah, that's not what we're hearing. Nothing that he was looking for in life. 
Jesus, even when he first showed up in his life, says it's really tough to kick, kick against the goads, isn't it? I mean, life isn't going really well for you. It's not what you thought it would be, right? <laughs> what? <laughs> he did not just do it. Man, this is just... This guy must have gone to the Rick Warren School of Biblical Eisegesis and Twisting twisting Hermeneutics. Good night. Hang on a second. I got to back this up. Listen. He had the best education. He was set up to win. And yet he was still experiencing. Talking about the Apostle Paul. Nothing that he was looking for in life. Jesus, even when he first showed up in his life, says it's really tough to kick, kick against the goads, isn't it? I mean, life isn't going really well for you. It's not what you thought it would be, right? Oh, man. So apparently the big problem that Paul of Tar- Saul of Tarsus was suffering from was dissatisfaction with his because it wasn't working out the way he'd wanted it to. You have got to be kidding me. Un- <laughs> okay, Acts chapter 26, if you have your Bible. That's what he was referencing here. Acts chapter 26. Flip on over to there and um yeah, I, I got to read from the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul giving his testimony before King Agrippa. And um, verse, chapter 26, verse 1, okay? See if uh, Paul's conversion, you know, when Jesus showed up in his life and said, basically said, you know, hey, I, I, things didn't work out. You know, things weren't working out for you the way that you thought they would. Your life was random and you were completely dissatisfied, right? Let's see if that's what the text says. Here, here we go. <clears throat> I can't believe I have to do this. Unbelievable. I mean, did I mention the fact that this is a survey that atheists know more about Christianity than Christians do? This is one of the reasons why. Anyway, um, Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So then Paul stretched out his hand and he proceeded to make his defense. Now, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, for... I'm about to make my defense before you, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. For then all, So then all Jews know uh, my manner of life from my youth up, which, uh, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope I, King, am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? If so, then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, you see, the reason why Paul was hostile to the um, to Christianity is because he mistakenly thought that that was his purpose in life. Yeah, see, he 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 didn't experience God's revelation of what his real purpose should have been in life, and so that's the reason why he was hostile. <coughs> <coughs> Unbelievable. So then I thought to myself, 
that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities." And while thus engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, isn't it ironic that it that Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, how long are you going to continue uh, living your life contrary to the purpose for which I made you? That's not what he said. Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Yeah, kicking against the goads here basically is referring to the fact that Saul is persecuting Jesus, is persecuting uh, the one true religion uh, of the one true God. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to these things which you have seen, but also to the things which I, uh, which will I will appear to you. I was reading from the NASB, by the way, because it, the NASB has the kicking against the goads part. I, I wonder what the ESV says. Hang on a second here. I can just change translations to verse 14 here. Um, okay, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Yeah, ESV has the kicking against the goats, too. too. Yeah, uh-huh. So apparently what we have here is not, not Saul's conversion, but Saul finding his purpose in life. Finally discovering it. Yeah, and it, it took Jesus, an intervention on Jesus' part to, you know, to actually reveal to Saul that, you know, he was, he, he had made a wrong career choice. And that was why he was having all of this career dissatisfaction is because he had chosen incorrectly what his career should have been. And so he ultimately changed his game. He, he discovered God's plan for his life and he started living it. And look at how he described the two sides of his life in Acts 20 verse 24. He says, here's what I've discovered. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. My life, no matter what I do, is worthless unless I know and live God's plan. And the same is true. So, I mean, the Apostle Paul, I had no idea. He is one of the early purpose-driven prophets. I had no idea. I thought Paul said, I chose to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. <laughs> yeah, apparently. No, 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 no. What Paul was really preaching was purpose. Oh, okay. True for all of us. And yet... Most people have no clue, but you can change your game. People can come to church and have no clue. People can call themselves Christians and have no clue. People can be extremely devout and have no clue. But if you have no clue, there's no way to experience what he wants for you. We have to change our game. I believe. So you can go to, see, this is a, forget about backsliders. Oh man, when I was growing up in the, in the Nazarene church, We talked about backsliding carnal Christians. Yeah, you know, you know those types. You know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah, you see, because we were holy. Yeah, I, I was holy, and uh, and the backsliding carnal Christians are, you know, well, I was in high school, what were the kids who were, yeah, they were experimenting with sins of the flesh. And, and of course, I knew, I was better than them, because I, you, you, yeah, you see how that kind of sets that up? But, but see, that distinction's gone now. No, no. See, listen. The new, the new carnal Christians, well, they're the ones who go to church, and they just don't even have a clue as to what God's purpose is for their life. The true Christians, the ones who are kind of in the know, they're the ones who've received God's, well, special revelation about what their special purpose is. Yeah, yeah listen to that again. Notice the two tiers of Christianity now. Um, those who come to church and they have no clue, and those who've discovered their purpose. Yes, I know and live God's plan. And the same is true for all of us. And yet, most people have no clue. But you can change your game. People can come to church and have no clue. People can call themselves Christians and have no clue. People can be extremely devout and have no clue. But if you have no clue, there's no way to experience what he wants for you. Yeah, see, you, I mean, you can be a devout Christian and have no clue about your purpose in life. Yeah, yeah. see, purpose... Uh, it's this new purpose-driven tier here, you know. You've got your purpose-driven Christians and, well, you know, your substandard, subpar Christians. They may be devout. They might be Christian in name only. Uh, they may go to church all the time, but they don't have their purpose yet. So, well, they're kind of subpar. We have to change our game. I believe this truth should speak to each and every one of us, irregardless of where we think we are in our spiritual journey. I know it speaks. Irregardless. By the way, I looked this up. Irregardless is not a word. It's regardless. There is no such word as irregardless. Just a little fact. Next to me, I need to know and live his plan or I'll never experience what he created me to long for. That brings us to a pretty important point. You know, I, how are we going to do that? Well, if you're. Yeah, I mean, seriously, I mean, if I can go to church every Sunday and be a devout Christian and still not have this, man, my pastor's letting me down. Yeah, because, you know, at my church, you know, my pastor, you know, he talks, all he ever talks about is Jesus and, 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 and sin and grace and the forgiveness of sins and and Jesus and the cross and the forgiveness of sins and and Jesus. And you know, he never, my pastor never tells me about my secret hidden purpose that I need to discover. I feel gypped. Trying to get to the place where you can discover, know, and live out his plan, you have to understand some things about God that we don't know and understand. Many of us just start seeking out a plan and we start trying to live this plan and it doesn't start there. You have to understand some things about God. So let me parse those out for you at the beginning so that we can get to the plan part. If you're going to ever discover God's specific plan for your life, then you need to know that God has a vision for your life. He really does. Now, but so before you can get God's plan for your life, you have to first of all, well, God, you got to know that God has a vision for you. Okay, Whew, I'm glad he's letting me in on the secrets here because my pastors, again, you know, I don't know what's wrong with him. I mean, all he ever talks about is Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and sin and grace, law and gospel. Yeah, you know, and he reads whole sections of the Bible. Yeah, that's the other part. I mean, talk about annoying. Oh, man, I mean, I go into church, and at our church, I mean, oh, 
you know, you you sing all of these hymns and these hymns, they have like five, six verses that keep talking about Jesus and and they, uh, and it requires you to use your brain when you're singing them. And and then what happens is, is that some guy gets up and, you know, he reads like a chapter and a half from like the whole from like the Old Testament. Oh, talk about irrelevant. And then and then another guy gets up and he like reads like a whole section from like one of the epistles. Oh, man. I, I mean, whole sections of the Bible, I, whoever, who, this is, that's just silliness. And then he, then the pastor gets up and he actually reads an entire segment, you know, like, you know, like half a chapter of full, I mean, a long section from like one of the gospels. And then he preaches about that. I, I mean, seriously, I, it, um, I I mean, who knew that all you really need to do is rip a couple of verses out of context, you know, a verse here, a verse there, a verse here, a verse there, and that you could find out that God, you, you can find out these secret things that your pastor hasn't been telling you. If your pastor is like, you know, prone to like preaching whole sections of the Bible, then he's missing out on all the secret stuff. Secret number one, God has a vision for your life. By vision, I mean, he has a picture of your life when it's working right. And I know most of us aren't experiencing that picture. But he has a vision for our life when it's working right. And so, since he has a vision, if we're really going to ever get on his plan, we need to allow God's vision for our life to define our lives. That's law talk. If we're ever going to, then we have to. If we're going to, so apparently, okay, so let me write this down here. Um, if you're going to find out God's purpose for your life, yeah, God's purpose isn't revealed by grace. No, 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 no. It's revealed by you doing the right thing. So this is vision revelation by works, not by grace. Check. Got it. God's vision needs to be what defines our lives. And you say, well, what's God's vision? What does God see my life like if it's working right? Well, I'm going to give you two verses that show you both sides. The first one is this, 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the first part of God's vision of your life working. Yeah, middle of 1 Corinthians. Good night. Yeah, you skipped over the whole part about, you know, I chose no nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. Here we've got an imperative without any indicatives. <sighs> yeah, okay. Um, that's problematic, don't you think? Not only that, it's completely taken out of context. I wonder if there's any gospel in 1 Corinthians 10. Can't remember offhand. Let's take a look here. Mm-hmm, yeah, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 right. I, I'm, I'm reading here. Hang on a second here. Yeah, <sighs> unbeliever, yeah, well... Uh, Funny enough, the uh, major context here um, is uh, eating sacrifices to idols. Uh-huh, that's the context here. Uh, let me, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, boy, this is a good stuff. Um, wow. Uh, you know what, let me back up to verse 14. <laughs> oh, wow, this is interesting stuff. Okay, hang on a second here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the immediate context of verse 31. I, yeah, I need to kind of put it back in its context. 
Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many, one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food that is offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? Well, no. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. By the way, uh, side note here, um, you want to get a perspective on what God thinks about other religions (laughs) and their sacrifices? You're sitting there, well, they're sacrificing to God. No, no, no. Paul says that uh, the sacrifices in other religions, they're sacrificing to demons. That should give you a clue as to whether or not they're going to, yeah. Anyway, um, he says, so no, I imply that what the pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But... If someone says to you, hey, this meat's been offered to in sacrifice to an idol, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but this, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of, uh, of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. <laughs> You put the verse back in its context, and a shazam, it makes sense. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. He's, oh, okay, so this is secret principle number one. God has a big vision for you, but before you can, see, before you can find out what that vision is, well, you need to do, here. you got to do this. You have to do all things to the glory of God. Yeah, because, you know, because if you don't, then God's not going to give you this this vision. And you're thinking, uh, wait a second, how will I know when I've done enough things to the glory of God so that God will say, okay, you've done enough. See, the thing is, this is he's, he's taken this out of context and turned it into a law passage. If you do this, then God will do that. The problem with the law is the law is never satisfied, ever. You've never done enough, and every time you sin, you fall farther and farther away from the mark that you're supposed to, yeah. Oh, man right, is that everything you do, whether it's mundane, like eating and sleeping, or whatever you do, the greatest thing you do, if it's vocational or relational or personal or private or public, whatever you do, it needs to be to his glory. What's that mean? It needs to be worshiping him, honoring him, in gratitude to him. In fact, let me just put it on the bottom shelf. He's saying, here's your life when it's working right. You're living to my pleasure. You're living to my pleasure in everything you do. Everything you think. The irony here is that First uh, Corinthians ten thirty one doesn't teach that. Isn't that weird? You put it back in context, like, yeah, these things that he's 
supposedly drawing out of this verse, they're not there when you read it in context, which basically asks the question or begs the question, do you think that the reason why he tore this verse out of context is so that he can make all this other stuff up about it? You know, I'm just asking, because if he were preaching, you know, through 1 Corinthians and he got to chapter 10, would he be making these same points? (laughs) No. To my pleasure, everything you do to my pleasure. And then look at the second part of God's vision of our life when it's working right. Look at Psalm 144. In Psalm 144, verse 15, it says, blessed, and that word means satisfied, fulfilled, you know, content, happy are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. He's saying, blessed are the people who live for God's pleasure. You want to know what God's vision of our lives is? It's simply this. In everything we do, we live to his pleasure. And as a result, in everything we do, we experience his pleasure. When you- <clears throat> Psalm 144, if you have your Bible, flip on over there. I'll be reading from the ESV, which I lovingly refer to as the English Sanctified Version, which, by the way, is the e- English Standard Version. Uh, let me read it to you, the whole psalm. Let's really, I mean, he just ripped verse 15, you know, just tore, tore it right out of context. Hey, let's take a look at this here. Blessed be the Lord my God, who trains my hand for war and my fingers for battle. So much for pacifism. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold, and he is my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouth uh, whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a ten-stringed harp. I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corn pillars cut for the structure of a palace." May may our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessing are the people whose God is the Lord. Yeah, you know, I, I'm reading uh, Psalm 144.15 as gospel, and he's turned it into law, something I have to do. Man, does this, is, is this guy familiar at all with the gospel? I mean, all he's preaching is self-righteousness, backing it up. Here we go. Blessed are the people who live for God's pleasure. You want to know God's vision? Yeah, that's not what the passage says. It just doesn't say that of our lives is it's simply this in everything we do we live to his pleasure and as a result in everything we do we experience his pleasure in everything in everything in it's really brad do you think you can say that you really do that do you really seriously come on you can level with me 
I'm I'm like well, a hundred percent confident. You still sin every day. Yeah. So I mean, do you can I mean that being the case, can you really say that you do everything for God's pleasure? Come on, who are you fooling here? When you live to his pleasure, you experience his pleasure. And we're all longing to experience his pleasure. Who doesn't want to be satisfied, fulfilled, content, at peace, happy? Oh, I know. Seriously, who doesn't want to be satisfied, content? And I can get you right now into a, a 2010 Jesus. I'm telling you. I, I mean, that's the thing. I, you, you sign here on the dotted line. I get you into a 2010 Jesus, and you're going to have contentment and uh, satisfaction and peace. I'm telling you. All of us do. We long for it, but we're not finding it. Why? Because we're not living to his pleasure. He created us in his image. He created us to reflect him on this planet. In so doing, we live to his pleasure and then experience his pleasure. That's his vision, and it needs to define us. Let me ask you, is your life defined by every choice, every thought, every activity of your life being to his pleasure? Um, Let me just throw that question back at you, Brad. Come on. Every choice, every decision, everything in your life, is it all for his pleasure? Come on. Be honest. The answer is no. See, the thing is, you're promising something that the law promises only to those who completely obey it. Not to those. God doesn't grade on the curve when it comes to the law, dude. Well, that's why you're not experiencing his pleasure his vision. That's where you have to start. You're never going to get to his specific plan for you if you don't understand what your life is like when it's working right. And then when you understand he's got this vision, living to his pleasure and experience his pleasure, that's a big picture thing. You want to, you go, all right, get more concrete for me, you know, bring it down to where I can see what that looks like. And that's exactly why Jesus came down to earth. Jesus came down to earth to show us what it looks like when a human being lives to God's pleasure and experiences God's pleasure. Wow. Wow. That's wow. <clears throat> Pastor Charlie, what do you think of that? Um, <clears throat> which theme does that fall into, Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism? Wow. Backing that up. Hang on a second. Listen to this. Concrete for me, you know? Bring it down to where I can see what that looks like. And that's exactly why Jesus came down to earth. Jesus came down to earth to show us what it looks like when a human being lives to God's pleasure and experiences God's pleasure. No, you're lying, sir. There isn't a verse in the Bible that says that, not one. I defy you to find one passage that says that. Jesus came to earth to live a sinful, sin, sorry, sin, sinful, sinless life for me, a sinner, to live a sinless life to fulfill the law and to die on the cross as my penal substitute for my sins. Jesus didn't come to show me what it looks like when somebody lives a satisfying life. I mean, seriously. And so that brings us to the purpose. God has a purpose that we need to understand if we're ever going to know his plan. And God's purpose needs to direct our lives. It needs to direct us. In other words, each day I'm directed by God's purpose so that I can live out God's vision. Look what his purpose is. It's found in Romans 8, verse 29. For those God foreknew. And who is that? It's everybody. 
God created and designed each and every one of us. We'll look at that a little bit deeper in, in a minute. But God's design, he's foreknown all of us. He's the one that designed us, created us, wired us up. And so he's for, he foreknew all of us. He also, to those he foreknew, predestined. Let's just use the word predetermined. He predetermined for each and every one of us that he knew ahead of time, because he created us ahead of time, this purpose, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. God has a purpose that should direct our lives, and that purpose is this. You notice the tactic here. Here's the tactic. Rip a bunch of verses out of context, tell a story about them out of context, and weave together a theology that isn't taught in the Bible. You could not get this theology out of the Bible if you read all of these passages in context. Wow. Every single day, my life should be lining up to Jesus' life. Now, that doesn't... Okay, uh, so how, how are you doing, Brad? Every single day, your life should line up to Jesus' life. How's that lining up for you? How's, how are you doing? I've got a shiny, brand new uh, Sacagawea dollar coin that says... Your life doesn't line up to Jesus, not even remotely close on a daily basis. I mean, just exterior. I mean, how I feel, my heart, my mind, my thoughts, my choices, my values, they need to all line up with Jesus. <laughs> do you notice, how, seriously, how, do you, how are you feeling at, at listening to this? I mean, is this sermon making you feel better about yourself or is it condemning you? It's all law. This is pure rank law condemnation. He's making it sound so easy. Listen, if you want to have God's purpose for your life and you want to get the special thing in there, all you got to do is you got to look to your example, Jesus. Jesus came to show you what it looks like when somebody has a satisfying life. And you want a satisfying life like Jesus, then your life needs to line up with his. So every day you need to get up and you need to make sure that your life lines up with him. And then whammo blammo, presto magico, then you'll be satisfied. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? Yeah, well, if it's so easy, then why is this pastor still sinning every day? He's not, uh, he's not teaching the truth here. He's condemning himself. This is just pure rank hypocrisy. And know this, if your life is lining up with Jesus, you're going to be living to God's pleasure because Jesus did. And if your life is lining up to Jesus on a daily basis, you'll be experiencing God's pleasure. So, I mean, the reason why you're not experiencing God's pleasure on a daily basis, well, is because your life is not lining up to Jesus. So, you know, you have no one to blame but yourself. You better work harder, try harder. Yeah, you know, so maybe I can make a fortune, you know. Uh, selling uh, false doctrine to these people to tell them the secrets to how to get their lives to line up. Oh yeah, I, polar bear alerts. Yeah, the, the the man. Because Jesus did. That's God's purpose. God's vision should define us. God's purpose should direct us every day. We should be trying to pattern our life inside and out to be more like Jesus. Was this your last week? Of course not. Not for most of us. Why? Because we're playing the game of life as other people play it. We're Dan, man. We're hitting the buzzer. We're doing the stuff. We're doing everything everyone else is doing. But we don't know the point. We have to change our game. 
We have to follow God's vision and God's purpose and God's values. Because God has values that will motivate us to live to his pleasure. Because when I said earlier, when I said, here's your God's vision for your life, you should be living to his pleasure, the average person is going, why do I have to live to his pleasure? What is he, a needy little God up there saying, you got to live to me? Or No. He knows when you're driven by the right values, that's exactly what you'll want to do. God's values should be driving our... So when you're driven by the right values, then you'll want to please God. Um, no regeneration necessary. Yeah, yeah, no, no faith and trust. This is all just rank, moralistic, pharisaical legalism, folks. It's a, it's repackaged in a purpose-driven, uh, you know, in purpose-driven packaging. But this is just rank, 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 pietistic, legalistic, hypocritical legalism. This creates two things: uh, those who despair, pe- uh, people who despair, or hypocrites. Or atheists, that's the third. I talked about that yesterday. Are you hearing any gospel here? I mean, are you really even hearing sound biblical doctrine? Christ and him crucified for your sins? Nope. You're hearing just straight flamethrower law preaching. And you know what it's doing? It's condemning everybody. And then people are going, well, how do I do it? Just try harder. You know, what you you see, it's real simple. If you want to live this way, all you got to do is be motivated by the right values, the God values, you know, and then you'll want to do the right thing. Oh, you no, know, you, that's not true at all. You're sinful by nature. <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> means you have your sinful flesh going, I don't want to do anything that God wants me to do. Lives to look like Jesus, to live to God's pleasure, to experience his pleasure. God's values. Well, all you have to do is look at Jesus, the one we're supposed to be lining our life up with to find out what God's values are. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was asked what the greatest command is. Boil this thing down. It's pretty confusing to me. Boil it down to what I should really be doing. And this is what Jesus said. You want to know what the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Now, if you're thinking, why should I live to his pleasure? What does he say? No, I'm thinking, really, do you think you do that? Come on. You, you, when can you say that you've honestly ever loved God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? When can you point to that time in your life? You know, it was, it was in 2004 at, uh, in October at 1030 in the morning on uh, the, uh, it was a Thursday if I remember correctly. Come on. Don't you understand the purpose of the law is to condemn you and show you your sin? Those of you listening, I'm running out of time here because I'm waxing eloquent here in the sermon review. I'm giving you a homework assignment. Your homework assignment is to read Romans chapters 1 through 8. Paying real close attention to chapters 2 and 3 tail end of three in particular and and for extra credit yeah extra credit read galatians on top of it it will completely decimate this guy's false legalistic hypocritical theology this is law 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 this is not the gospel this is purpose by works purpose by earning it not purpose by grace unbelievable
some small God that really needs a bunch of people bowing down to him, then you obviously don't love him. When you truly, genuinely love someone with your entire being, you want to live to their pleasure. Now, when Roxanne and I got married 31 years ago... Um, so then, uh, Brad, then I can conclude that since you still sin every day that you don't love God with all your heart, right? I, I really liked her a lot. <laughs> now, I said I loved her, but I was 21. Seriously, I didn't know how to drool properly yet. I mean, it was like... I mean, it was like, I, I, I love you for the rest of my life. I, I had no clue what the rest of my life was. I had no clue what love was. I had no clue of that. I, I loved me a lot, and she made me, the one I loved a lot, feel good, so I liked her a lot. Why don't you move in, baby? Make me feel even better. Uh, you know, it's like, that's kind of where I was. I said that in a way the kids wouldn't get it, and the adults would. <laughs> so, uh, but, I mean, it was like, I liked her a lot. Because I loved me and she made me feel good. But over the course of 31 years, um, through good times and through bad times, I've started loving her a lot. And you know, in the early days when I liked her a lot because she made me feel good, when she didn't make me feel good, I didn't like her very much at all. But now that I love her a lot, not perfect at it, but I want to live to her pleasure. I really do. When you love someone with your entire being, it's not a bad thing to live to their pleasure. It's the natural thing. We should be driven by the value of loving God with our entire being. But Jesus couldn't stop with that one value because he said, if you really love God... Uh, we should. We sh this is all law. This is pure rank law. There is no gospel here. This, is, this sermon is doing nothing but condemning people and the preacher of all people too that's the funny part this way you can't help but love your neighbor as yourself because if you really love god then you're going to want to live to his pleasure and you need to know he's only pleased when you love the people he loves okay so you you heard it god is only pleased when you love the people that he loves Man, I need a savior after this because, uh, well, I haven't loved the people that God loves, and I haven't loved God with all of my heart. You got any good news for me? Because, um, yeah, I, I've completely blown it in this category, and so has the pastor. It's really important. And then Jesus said, let me put a face on this for you. What does love look like? Because we talk about love a lot. You know, we, when we get married, do that. we talk about love a lot. But look what he says it really looks like in Matthew chapter 20, verses 27 and 28. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. You want to be great in God's eyes? You want to really live to his great pleasure? You need to be other people's slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. The values that should drive us are the values of Jesus, which is to love God so much that we love those he loves, the world, so much that we're... Oh, it makes it sound so easy, doesn't it? I mean, seriously, wow, all we got to do is love God. ...willing to serve God and serve others. Now, there's a problem here, I know. There's a disconnect because we're all very subjective and we always view ourselves through the best device. Now, we view each other through the worst device, but we view ourselves through the best device. I don't know about you. When I do the exact same thing wrong that you do, 
I have no problem with me doing it. But when you do it, I'm pretty ticked about that. It doesn't look good to me. We look at ourselves to the best of eyes. And now you've been interpreting this vision thing and this purpose thing and this values thing through your own eyes. And you're going, yeah, I'm doing all right. It's kind of like Bill Murray in Groundhog's Day when she's listing out the perfect guy and he's going, me, 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 me. Man, I'm really close here. I mean, really? Couldn't be further away from it. And it's because we're so subjective. What we have to do is we have to look at this more objectively. And so I, I want to help you. Because I, I can look at myself and I say, hey, I love some people a lot. And I serve them a lot. Boy, I must love God a lot. And I bet you some of you are doing that too. Man, I must love God a lot because I love some people a lot. And I serve people a lot. But here's what I found about me. See if it's true of you. I love and serve those who love and serve me. Which means I really don't love them. I love me. And I want to keep adding fuel to them so they'll keep loving me, the person I love more than anyone else on the planet. And by the way, it's it's easy for me to be honest with you because I look at you and go, you're worse than me. (laughs) This is true of all of us. And so I love those who are natural to love because they make my life better and more profound and all this different stuff. They bring benefit into my life. I'll give you an example of this. This last week, something really cool happened in our family's life. Look at this. Really, I don't know. You you probably thought your kids were beautiful, but that one's beautiful right there. Our daughter and son-in-law obviously brought Nola Karras into the world. And uh, I'm going to tell you, I was in the hospital room on the day she was born. and, And I looked at Roxanne and I said... How can I already love this girl so much when this is the first time I ever met her? I mean, I love her. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm issuing warning to her parents. I am going to serve this kid for the rest of my life. I am going to spoil her rotten. We are going to go broke, giving her everything she wants. She will be unruly and uncontrollable at home. Because we are going to do our job as grandparents. That's all I can say. I mean, we are going to... We're going to love and serve this kid. And it comes naturally. Why? Because it is natural. It brings benefit to us. It expands who we are. That doesn't mean we're living by the values that God set out. When God says, I want you to love me so much that you love others and serve them. He wasn't talking about those who bring us benefit. He was talking about those who don't. He says, I want you to love me so much that you're willing to love and serve those who bring no benefit into your lives. No wonder we're not playing his game. It's because we don't... Uh, Can I point something out here? Uh, Based upon this uh, cosmic quid pro quo law preaching that he's giving, um, there would be nobody who would qualify as somebody who wouldn't bring me benefit. No, if the reason I'm serving somebody... I can claim I'm serving them selflessly, but if the reason I'm serving them selflessly is so that God will see that I'm I'm doing the right things so that he will reveal to me his plan for my life so that I can be satisfied, then I'm not doing it for somebody else. I'm doing it for my own benefit. value what he values. We need to be defined by his vision We need to be directed by his purpose and we need to be driven by his values. And when we are, then we can start finding and discovering his specific plan for us.
Because you see, God's vision and purpose and values are the same for all of us. Whether you're called to be an attorney or a sanitation collector or a factory worker or a teacher or, God forbid, a politician. It doesn't matter. Whatever you're called to be, you're not going to find his specific plan for you until you get the vision, purpose, and values thing down. And most people don't have those things down. You're looking for... See, you just can't find God's purpose for your life until you get all that other stuff down. And there isn't a single passage in the Bible that says any of that. This is not taught in the Bible. He's ripped a bunch of verses out of context and woven together a tapestry of lies. This is not biblical doctrine. For his plan, you'll never find it until you get his vision, purpose, and values. Then you can start looking for his plan. Then you can start finding his plan. Then you can start living his plan. Because his plan is that which should ultimately design our lives. His plan. So we need to be literally designed by his plan for our lives. But of course, to get there, we have to know it. We have to understand it. This is a huge issue. Look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24. A man's steps are directed by the Lord. God has a plan so specific for us that he literally has the steps determined. Which door we should walk through, which doors we should avoid, which choices we should make, which choices we should never make, where we should go, how we should do it. He has our steps directed. While God's vision, purpose, and values are the same for all of us, God's plan for us is specific to us. Look at how it says it of Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth. How? By completing the work you gave me to do. This is Jesus. Now, tie it all in, would you? This is really important. What's God's vision for us? That we live to his pleasure. That our lives give him glory. And when it does, we'll experience his pleasure in our lives. Jesus... Gave God glory on earth in everything he did. How did he do it? By doing the work God assigned him. He knew God's plan and lived it out. And we're supposed to be being like Jesus. We're supposed to be driven by the same values as Jesus. And if we do, we'll find the plan that God has for us. And we'll be able to bring God glory. Our lives will work right on earth. Because we're living the... If we do, if we do, if we do... Show me from one of the epistles where this doctrine and this teaching is clearly spelled out in this way. It's not. Christianity and the apostles and Jesus and even the prophets do not teach this stuff. This is a tapestry of deceit. Work that God gave us to do. Now, all of that is the introduction. One person going, that excites me. (laughs) Everyone else is saying, oh, garbage. How long is this service going to be? The introduction was very, very important to the application. Because, see, we... We have an application on top of all of this law preaching? I can't wait to hear it. We need to know his plan. How do we know it? It's an easy thing for me to get up and say, God has a vision, God has a purpose, God has values, God has a plan. Go find it. How are we going to find it? 
How are we going to engage it? How are we going to know it? How are we going to live it? Well, God doesn't play hide and seek with us. God has given us the principles through which we can know and live his plan in the context of his vision, purpose, and values. He really is. You can know exactly why God made you, his significant and specific plan. But you have to follow his principles. And I want to show But you have to. You can learn it, but you have to. But you have to. But... <sighs> those with you, but I don't want you to have the wrong idea. It's not like I'm going to give you a nice little formula that if you go home and plug it into, you know, the microwave in 30 seconds, you're going to be living out God's plan. It's not that kind of plan. It's not a simple formula. These principles will only be engaged in your life if you do the work. It takes discipline. It takes sacrifice. It takes persistence. Have you noticed that this guy is a perfect disciple of Rick Warren? This is Rick Warren's theology writ large in somebody else's church. This guy is a purpose-driven disciple. Devotion, time, and therefore it takes patience. These principles must be engaged. So how can we know and live as planned? What are the principles we need to work into our lives? The first one, this is the starting place. It, you have to start here. You must seek God. You must seek God. Now, this isn't where we start. We seek the plan, right? Well, forget about the vision, the purpose, and values. We don't even consider those. We just seek the plan. What am I supposed to be doing? Where am I supposed to be living? Where's the job I'm supposed to get? What, you know, we seek the plan. You will never find the plan if you seek the plan. It's not like there's this chalice out there that you can find. You need to seek God, and then you'll discover his plan. God's got the plan, but you've got to seek him to find it. Look at Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. He wants us looking to him. So you think that passage from Jeremiah, it teaches you that if you seek God, then he'll give you the plan. Again, where do, the Bible doesn't teach any of this stuff. This guy has ripped a verse out of context here, ripped a verse out of context there, ripped one here, ripped one there. Who needs context? And woven together this theology. And it's not biblical Christianity. And it's not grace. It's not the cross. It's not Christ. This is pure, unadulterated works righteousness. And this is the fruit of Rick Warren's teaching. It has produced, he's been fruitful and produced another false teacher in his image doing the same thing. Calling on him, connecting to him, being in relationship with him, pursuing him. When we pursue God and a relationship with him, we discover everything he longs for us because in relationship he shares it. I missed a lot of things that my dad longed for me in life because I didn't build a relationship with him. I went my own way. I did my own thing. And we're all doing the same thing with God. He's not going to unfold his plan unless we're in relationship with him. When you seek God, 
you discover his plan. He unfolds the things to you that you can't even comprehend. They're outside of your ability to conceptualize. And look at how he does it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. God has taken the time to literally inspire out his word, his scripture, which is contained in the Bible, which is not past word. It's living word through which he communicates to us today. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, which means training in living God's way, in doing life God's way, so that the person who's seeking God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When you're seeking God and calling on God and you're willing to openly admit your need and open yourself to his truth and apply it to your life, he unfolds his design. Nothing about repentance and forgiveness of sins when you yield, when you do this. And notice he changed, so it, the, the, uh, the scripture says, so that the uh, man of God may be equipped. And no, no, so the one who seeks God is what he says. Wow. For your life to you on a daily basis. You need to start by seeking God. A lot of people have the wrong idea of church. A lot of people think church is the end game. Like, I'm at church. Okay, God, time to give me your pleasure. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if that was that easy? Come, drink a latte, sit in church, don't listen, unless it's a lobster, and then that's fun, and then leave, and then God has to bless you. That's not how it works. Church isn't like this end game that you have to put up with so that God will give you a thing because God desperately needs your butt in a chair in his church in order to feel good about the universe. I mean, that's not what it's about. Church is meant to be an aid to you in your pursuit of God. An encouragement, an inspiration, a time of enlightening. I hope my talks really encourage you in your pursuit of God. That's the value of this. It's not a have to come. It's a get to come because someone else can stir me up to pursue God. That's what church is all about. To help you see his vision and his purpose and his values and to understand how you can find his plan. I mean, that's what it's about. And Well, that then becomes a have to come so that I can, you know, find out his plan. I have to come if I want to find out his plan. It's still a have to. Since a lot of people don't understand church, I teach a seminar around here called Discover Northridge because we want you to understand how the church can come alongside and help you pursue God, how you can connect. And the next one's in a couple of weeks, on October 15th, which is a Friday night, there's a dinner, there's a bunch of stuff. I'd love to be a part of your life on that evening and helping you to see how Northridge tries to fulfill what God wants his church to be and helping you to seek God. But that's where it starts. Want to know God's plan? Seek God. Then, once you're seeking God, got to start with seeking God. Once you're seeking God and you're starting to see life through his eyes, experience life through his truth, then to know and live his plan, you need to know yourself. You need to know yourself. We are living, one of the disappointments I have with our culture is that we are in one of the least introspective cultures in the world. We take no time to introspect, evaluate, assess life. We just, we're like Dan. We're just going, here's the silver card. He's like, give me some points. You know, I want to win. It's just nuts. We have to think this thing. We have to know ourselves. You must know yourself or else we'll never get there. Isn't it interesting that you can often, not always, but you can often tell the purpose of something by its shape. I mean, you look at the shape, you go, This is meant to go round and round. Wheels go round and round. Look at that. It's obvious. I mean, you look at its shape, you know its purpose. Well, the same is true for us.
Really? <clears throat> so you can tell my purpose based on my shape. Yeah, still struggling with my weight, so I'm pear-shaped. I wonder what that means. God says in Psalm 139 through the psalmist, beginning with verse 13, For God, you created my inmost being. You literally knit me together in my mother's womb. If you've ever seen someone knitting, I mean, there's personal care and personal attention. I mean, and they're doing it for a purpose, an afghan or a scarf or whatever. You created my inmost being. You literally knit me personally together with love in my mother's womb for a purpose. And I praise you, God, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You've done it right. You've done a great job. I'm unique. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And then he says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has knit you together in such a way that you could fulfill his significant and specific plan for you in the days he's ordained for you to live. Look at your shape. Pear. Yeah, pear-shaped. And you're going to be able to start figuring out God's design. Seek God, know yourself. For example, all you have to do is look at your gifts and abilities, and you can know what God intended for you and what he didn't intend for you. Oh, I see. Yeah, God gave me the gift of discernment. Yep, that means I'm using it to test your teaching against the Word of God, and, well, it's uh, come up wanting. Yeah, your teaching is false. But because we're, but that's the shape that, you know, that, I mean, God made me to do that. We're playing a game with no point. We're just playing the game of life. We're doing what everyone else is doing. We're following other people. What we're often doing is we're trying to do things we're not gifted to do. And so we're frustrated and we're confused and we're bitter and we're angry. We're competing with people we can't compete with. We weren't supposed to compete with them. We were supposed to do something else, but we're following each other around and doing what we're not gifted to do. I'll give you one example that's easy. I think all of us have had this experience. It's easy to understand. God has, and all of us know this, God has given some people the unbelievably profound ability to sing, right? I mean, beautifully and to move your hearts. It's an unbelievable thing. And then there are the rest of us, right? But here's the weird thing. People who can sing really well get to get up on a platform. They get to sing. It seems, oh, man, so cool. And then everybody goes, oh. And we go, I want that. I'll trade in my silver card for it. And we're playing that game because that's what we're looking for, the attention. They must be winning in this game. And so even though we don't have the gift to sing, we want to sing. We have people all the time saying, I, I, I've got a song in my heart and I want to share it from the platform. <laughs> After listening to them sing, we know we'll never let them even close to the platform because they don't have a gift and that people have gotten mad and all that. Look at, look at. If God hasn't given you the gift to sing, he doesn't want you singing. <laughs> Knock that one off the list, you know? Look at you. Know yourself. And then, if you're going to know you, you have to know your personality because truly, an introvert is going to have different potential than an extrovert. A task oriented person is going to have different potential than a people oriented person. So now we're going into, uh, what is this, the uh, 
How does that work? I, I forget. There's like these personalities. So, but you need to take a personality test to figure out God's will for your life. That's the other. But don't do not do that before you start loving him with all your heart and seeking after him. Yeah, yeah. You, you got to wait until you start doing that and he starts kind of revealing some things. Then you get the personality profile done. Yeah, you can be like an ENTP or, you know, or something like that. Someone that's into the details it has different plans in their life than the person that's a big picture person. You need to know your strengths and weaknesses. Too often, because we're competing with each other, we're trying to play our... Where does the Bible talk about introverts, extroverts, intuitive, and all that kind of stuff? Our weaknesses, when God wants us playing our strengths. His plan doesn't involve the frustration of trying to be strong where you're weak. It involves being strong where you're strong. Let other people who are strong where you're weak be strong where you're weak. I think that actually made sense. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, again, I, I don't think I need God for this. Um, you know, I, I see lots of pagans who get personality profiles and then, and then they find satisfying careers without Jesus. Sure. But I think it did. We need to know ourselves. And knowing ourselves, we have to know our passions. We have to know our passions. I grew up in, I, I, you know, most of us went to school. And I was really confused. I was one of these kids. I was really confused in school. And that's because, more than just because I have a low IQ. I was confused in school because I didn't understand why people who hate children were elementary school teachers. <laughs> if you hate children, stay away from them. I don't care if there are needs in that vocational opportunity. Seriously. You need to know yourself. And that can help you to find God's plan. You need to ask others. You need to ask others. Because very often... So God, so this is like an Easter egg hunt. Okay, so in order to discover God's plan, i got to first completely love him with all of my heart and love, love the people he loves and obey all of his principles and then i got to take a personality test and then like an you know easter egg hunt god may have hidden you know what i'm you know, the the secret to what i'm supposed to do in giving you know hints to other people so that i have to go to them and ask them we don't see ourselves through objective eyes i think i've told you all before when i was a young kid i used to walk around my neighborhood singing thinking an agent was going to discover me and make me rich and uh I always wondered why no one liked me. Uh, and it was like, I was doing something I was horrible at. And when I started asking others, what do you think of my voice? And they started, you know, saying, we think you should die. Um, <laughs> I, I, I started realizing maybe singing's not my gift. See, we can think we sound great when we don't. And I'm going to tell you something else. Make sure you ask the right people because there are people who will lie to you. Really. Wives, if you really want to know if that dress looks good on you, don't ask your husbands. <laughs> They're going to lie, man. They're not stupid. You want to know how that dress looks on you, go ask the catty woman next door who hates your guts. She'll tell you the truth about that dress. I mean, we need to ask the right people. And then Proverbs 15:22 says it, you know, plans succeed when you have many advisors. Invite people into your life to tell you the truth about yourself. And then finally, you need to make the choice. If you're going to know and live God's plan, you need to make the choice to know and live God's plan. You need to make the choice. And there are three aspects of this choice that are vital, and they're quick, but they're vital. Please stick with it. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This okay, now we're steering into 
the portion I told you at uh, I don't remember when I told you it was at the beginning or even before we got into the sermon view that at the tail end you're going to hear something that's gospelish. Okay, now pay close attention to what he does with the gospel here because all of this has been nothing but law. It's not from yourselves. It's God's gift. It's not by your works. It's not like a religious thing so that no one can boast. Then it says, once you've experienced that gift, then you become God's workmanship. You're literally remade, created in Christ Jesus now to do good works, the works that God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, once we get recreated in Christ Jesus, then we can actually experience the plan that God originally designed for us. This, uh, here's, this is the sales pit. This is the final closer. Okay, you know, if I can get you into it, what is it going to take to get you into a 2010 Jesus? I, that's, that's what I, I need to know here. I mean, listen, you, you want to, the 2010 Jesus promises you job satisfaction, promises you uh, peace, uh, you know, and, and then, and so here's the closer. Okay, all of this was the sales pitch leading to the closing. Here's the closer. You need to be recreated in Christ. Oh, how do I ex- quote experience that? That's what he said. That's a weird way to talk about it. This thing is on point, but you need to make the choice. What are the three areas of choices? Here's the first one. If you're going to ever know and live God's plan, you need to receive the gift, the gift of being forgiven. Okay, so you you got to be forgiven. Well, I'm glad we got something that sounds like the gospel in here. But you see, if you want to know when experience God's plan, then you got to receive the gift. You got to receive you got to receive the gift to be forgiven. Okay, so the, the the forgiven thing is something you have to do in order to experience God's plan. Isn't this turning the gift into a work? Because I'm only do I'm only receiving the gift, you know, so that I can get to the plan newly created because here's the truth god created us for a significant and specific plan but we've all lost sight of it and wandered away and in so doing we've wrecked our lives we've met okay so god has this plan but we've wandered away we've wrecked our lives so we we need to receive the gift to be forgiven apparently yeah because it's apparently if you wander away and you wreck your life that's so bad that you need to be forgiven for it Messed up our lives, filled with guilt and brokenness and shame and all kinds. Of you mean sin, right? Kinds of other things, and we don't deserve to know God. We don't have the capacity to know God, but the gift is forgiveness, so that we can know God again. Ah, so we can be forgiven of you know, like you know, wandering off and not doing the plan right. <sighs> Discover Him. Jesus died for sin, not because he sinned, but because we did. And he rose to get up for new life, not because he needed new life, but so he could share it with... Okay, so that was the first mention of sin. I mean, four, what is it, 40, 50 minutes into this thing, 50 minutes into this sermon, we hear first the mention of sin because he, well, he's got to close it. We got to get some sin in there somewhere. Thus, you need to receive the gift. Can't earn it, but you can receive it. That's and you need to receive it if you want to get to the plan. The starting place. And I'm so concerned that so many who like these talks and who like the experience here and like this haven't made the choice to receive the gift. you got to make the choice to receive the gift. This is, um, well, semi-Pelagianism at best and Pelagianism at worst. Yeah. Receive the gift. 
fact, I'm going to ask you right now, if you would just bow with me in a word of prayer. The next two applications are important. Stick with me. They're quick. But let's bow our heads in prayer. And as we do, if you've not received the gift, do it now. Take my words and make them the expression of Yeah, you've got to receive the gift quickly so that, you know, do it now. I mean, it, it, listen, you can't even get to the plan until you, get, until you receive the gift. I mean, if, that, if your real goal is to get to the plan, you know, then you've got to receive the gift. Your heart. Just say, God, I've been living off point, playing the wrong game, doing my own thing. I've sinned against you, and I'm guilty because of it. But right now, I'm going to receive the gift of your grace, the forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus, the forgiveness that comes through his death and burial and resurrection. And I'm going to receive the gift of new life by trusting Christ with all my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that way. Now, question, is this repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Uh, what are they repenting of? Well, they're just saying, I, you know, listen, I... I, I, I didn't live the way I didn't live the plan, so I, I need to I want the I want the I want the divine plan. So he told me I've got to receive the gift before I can get the divine plan. So that's why I'm praying the prayer. Okay, cool. I, I've done I jumped through this hoop. So can we get on to the I gotta what what else do I need to do to get the plan? Is this really repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Wait. Please let me know. I mean, it's so easy. In the program we hand you, we put this little thing we call a connection card. And on the bottom, you just check off the place that says you prayed to receive Jesus with me. And put it in one of the boxes just outside the auditorium. And what we'll do is we'll send you a next steps letter that will help you grow. But let's look at the second choice. In Ephesians 2.8, it says, once you've received the gift, then you become God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You know what the second choice is? You need to make the choice to experience the change. You need to let God take you from the game you've been playing to his game. From the life you've been living to the life he created you for. From being like yourself and everyone else to being like Jesus. From valuing you to valuing God so much that you're willing to serve and invest your life in him and others. You need to make the choice to experience the change. Let me ask you, have you? So, so I've got to make the choice to experience the change. Where does the Bible say that again? Are you on his vision, on his purpose, on his values, on his plan? You need to make the choice to experience the change. And then finally, that verse ends by saying, when you're doing those good works through his grace, through his new creation in your life, when you experience the change, now you're doing the work that God prepared in advance for you to do. In other words, you start by nature doing the work you were designed to do. You make the choice to fulfill your calling. You make the choice to fulfill your calling. God has created you for a significant and specific plan, and you can know it. If you seek God, know yourself. I mean, that's so, so vitally important. You then need to ultimately make the choice. Do it, and your life will change forever. Now, just before we unleash the cow with the bell for you to follow out of here, um, I really have an announcement I want to make because it's important. Tonight, tonight... Tickets for the glory of Christmas go on sale to those who attend. Okay, we're done. 
Yeah, um, Brad Powell here is a perfect disciple of Rick Warren. Did any of that make any biblical sense? Was that story that he told, that weaving together of all those verses, was he really teaching what the Bible teaches? No, not at all. It was just a verse picked out of here, a verse picked out of there, a verse picked out of here, a verse picked out of there, half a sentence from there, and woven together into a tapestry that doesn't make any sense. Because here's the deal. Nowhere in the Bible does it say any of this nonsense. You can't teach this if you are basically opening the text and reading and exegeting in context. This isn't sound biblical doctrine. This isn't sound Christian theology. This is something completely different, and it's law and works-based. It's self-righteousness that creates hypocrisy, not repentance and the forgiveness of sins. False gospel. That's the only way I can put it. And it matters. And this is the fruit of Rick Warren's teaching. This is the fruit of what Rick Warren's theology and his conferences do to people. Brad Powell is a disciple of Rick Warren. (sighs) Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. If you haven't partnered with us financially, we really could use you to do so. You can do that by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> 